Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Thursday morning, March 2nd, 843-661-0937, our number. Uh, I do want to mention before we get started that Drew McKissick, South Carolina GOP chairman, will be with us at 8 o'clock. Drew is also the first uh, vice chair of the National Party. you got Ronna McDaniel, and then you've got Drew McKissick. Some people like those folks. Some people don't care much uh, for those folks. I think Drew know I'll be fair, but very abrupt, very blunt, very um, candid in some of my um, in some of my questions. Uh, one of the interesting parts I want to talk a little bit about is um, and I and I'll kind of um, set the table a bit. Does a political party is a political party obligated to its voters or its political leadership? I mean, I understand it takes a um, th- there's a, there's a lag period there between uh, when the elected officials are convinced this is where. Uh, the block of voters are. In other words, do you get, it would be almost like Rev, like, well, I mean, Pepsi-Cola sponsors us. And if um, if I just decided that despite Pepsi's plea for me to support Celsius, I wanted to be about Pepsi Zero. So so I'm, I'm placing a Pepsi Zero. I'm talking about Pepsi Zero. They call the next day and tell our salespeople, hey, we'd rather Ken talk about Celsius. We'd rather him talk about some of these other products we have. And I come on the radio the next day and I say, hey, get your Diet Pepsi. Get your Pepsi Zero. And they call back the next day and they say, look, man, I mean, we're footing the bill here. I mean, we, 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 we appreciate the partnership. We, we love the relationship. But eventually the guy's got to do what we say do because we own the company. So who owns the political party? I mean, how long can you say Pepsi Zero and Diet Pepsi when the voters are saying, you know, something different? When the voters are saying Celsius? Or, or Muscle Milk, or Gatorade, or, you know, whatever, Pepsi, uh, Mountain Dew, Dot Mountain Dew, whatever another product line is. And I just think that's kind of an interesting um, angle to take with Drew, um, because Drew's got to play a lot of different roles here. Who owns the Republican Party? Well, I mean, I, I don't think theirs is an owner. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's an organic it, group of, of who's like-minded supporters. Well, the I mean, voters that, or that's the, good question. the donors? Well, let me ask you this. Who's the most or powerful the, the Republican in America today? Donald Trump. Okay. Who's the second most powerful Republican in America today? Uh, probably DeSantis. But you're saying probably. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have any idea. No. I mean, you could and, argue and, Mitch McConnell. But you could argue McConnell's more powerful than Trump. Right. I mean, he's in a legislative responsible role. And I just think, you know, that's the question I want to get across to Drew. We are in an evolution. I mean, there's no question about it. We are, um, we are leaving one way we've historically believed and governed into a new realm. Um, I, I don't expect that to happen in a month. I mean, if we've been a globalist, interventionist, imperialistic-minded party, and all of a sudden a guy shows up and starts talking about America first and some of the um, some of the misgivings, transgressions of days gone by, that does, you don't flip a switch. I mean, I got here this morning, flipped a switch to turn the fan on. Guess what happened? The fan turned on. <laughs> flipped a switch to turn some lights on. Guess what happened? Some lights turned on. That's not going to happen in the evolution of, of a political party. And um, and I just think it would be interesting to get Drew's take on um, on that as well as DeSantis and and Trump. I've heard, don't, I don't want to divulge the, the sources, but I've heard there was a poll done this week in South Carolina that has DeSantis in the lead. I really? find that a bit odd. Mm, uh, unannounced candidate. Uh, yeah, an unannounced against, candidate. Um, against an almost but it, incumbent. But you wonder whether there was some cherry picking going on there. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't. You know, I'm not privileged to the data, but but I heard from a credible source that there was a poll done earlier this week that had Trump, DeSantis, and then Haley. 
So right now, Nikki Haley, as an announced candidate, is running behind Ron DeSantis as an unannounced candidate in the state she was governor in. I, I don't know how you find much optimism or optimism in <laughs> in, in that. Um, but speaking of Rona McDaniels, she recently said that Trump, if Trump's going to be on the stage on behalf of the Republican National Committee, right, during a presidential debate, potentially, he has to, what is it, sign some sort of loyalty oath that he won't go to a third party? Is that well, what she was saying? Well, I mean, she's arguing that to participate in the RNC debates, you're going to have to sign a loyalty. Now, now to me, the, the loyalty pledge should help Trump more than it hurts Trump. I mean, if you are, I mean, why didn't Trump win in 2020? Because some Republicans chose to not vote for him, right? Yeah. Uh, professing Republicans. We'll question whether right. they're, they're true Republicans or not. That would be the, um, the dot Pepsi, Pepsi Zero, Mountain Dew, Celsius crowd. You know, um, the voters chose Diet Pepsi, but we won't dot Mountain Dew. And if we can't have dot Mountain Dew, we're not drinking anything. I mean, we'll thirst to death. We'll die in the, uh, in the desert. But yeah, Rona, McDon- Rona McDaniel um, is basically saying candidates who do not sign this pledge um, will not be allowed to participate in these um, party-sponsored debates during the, um, the state-by-state primary nominating system. Trump's the winner in that. I mean, if a Haley gets beat or a DeSantis gets beat and they have to pledge their support, to Donald Trump, I mean, it is more likely that uh, some of the DeSantis supporters Good point. who don't okay. really care much for Trump, in particular Haley. I mean, it, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think Nikki Haley is the candidate that the establishment has chosen that they believe they have the best chance to disguise as an America first candidate. So if Haley gets 20% of the vote, 18% of the vote, whatever her number is, I don't think she scores that high, but whatever that number, let's say 15, let's say Nikki Haley gets 15% of the vote. Um, to me, that's a pretty good reflection of how many establishment voters are still holding out in the Republican Party. In other words, we're, we're sure of this. We're sure that Trump and DeSantis are one and two. Now, the most recent poll in South Carolina has DeSantis at one. I doubt that. I mean, I just sincerely doubt that. I think it's close. I don't buy the Emerson poll that has Trump at 55 and DeSantis at 28. I mean, I don't think there's twice the support for Donald Trump that there is for Ron DeSantis, I think eventually it will be a very, very closely contested and um, and, and must-see TV kind of to watch Trump lambast DeSantis and DeSantis try to not lambast Trump. Uh, that'll be DeSantis' strategy moving forward. We'll talk about Ron DeSantis a good bit today because he's making some waves. Um, he's selling a book. Imagine that. That's how you announce your candidacy in America today. You sell a book, you travel the country. I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm not here to talk about, you know, a potential presidential campaign. I'm here to talk about this book that I've written mm-hmm. about the courage it takes to stand strong against Mickey Mouse. Um, <laughs> and now, if, if just so happens, and I'm talking about this book, it introduces me to you, and you learn a little bit yeah. more about me. Yeah. And later on, you may hear my name and association with presidential elections. Well, if it just works out that way, it's just a coincidence, I guess. And and what he will say over and over again is, "Make America Florida." I mean, look at the example of Florida. We fought the culture wars. We're in good financial standing. Um, we are a kind of a um, a success story within many unsuccessful stories of the Republican Party in recent memory. I don't care who you are, and I don't care what your political leanings are. You've got to kind of go, wow, when you look at what DeSantis has done in Florida and the way he wins in a historically purple state. I mean, it ebbed and flowed back and forth, red, blue, red, blue. 
Well, DeSantis has completely and totally changed that reality. It is a red state. Is it a red state if Jeb Bush runs? I don't know. Is it a red state if Rick Scott runs? We'll find out. Scott's got a hotly contested um, Senate race here sooner than later. Um, but for DeSantis to win by the margin he did, had to get the attention of any Republican voter in America. Any Trump supporter has to consider Ron DeSantis an extremely serious Republican candidate by what he did in Florida. Not just the legislation, not just education, the culture war, and some of the uh, transgenderism issues he's confronted, the Disney issue that he took on. By the margin he won is what I'm so impressed by in a state that Republicans just don't win by 20 points. I mean, you just don't win in Florida as a Republican 60 to 40%. But that is pretty much what Ron DeSantis did. And that is, as someone who's run for office before, that is highly impressive. I mean, take it on Disney's one thing. Take it on education, public education in Florida. I mean, those are legislative and policy priorities. But winning an election in Florida as a Republican by somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 points, dude's doing something to be paid close attention to. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Kids, you know, um, the, what, what, what you, the RNC, the National RNC Republican Committee, those guys, they're not our friends. If they were our friends, they would be telling people like uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Romney, and the rest of those guys up there that are for this hoax of a daggone uh, war in Ukraine that we have no business being involved in. They would tell them, listen, you are not doing what your voters elected you to do. And they would come out on Tucker Carlson. They would come out on radio shows, and they would say, hey, they say, hey this is not what the voters want, and the Republicans need to do what the voters want. The people that voted you in do not think that the, the, the problem of Russia and Ukraine is our problem. And, and, that's what, and they would tell them that. And they would stand up to it, but instead, it appears like they are endorsing them. So you're right. You know, if you say it may take a little bit of little bit of jet lag between them figuring out what we want, you know, and, and articulating it. Well, if, the, if, if Lindsey Graham doesn't realize that the people that voted for him are not are not for spending hundreds of billions of dollars to, to lead us into World War Three, then, he, then he's an idiot. But he may be that anyway. I do think that probably so. Yeah. But that being said, there, there's more to it than this. You know, you know, Ken, I'm a humble man. And from one humble man to another, I remember when the first steel dossier came out, I was in front of the Firestone in Florence. And I called you guys up. And I think at the time, y'all may have only been on for an hour. And I said, the dang old um, dossier is probably, um, probably written up by the Democrats for the Democrats. And then I got to thinking about it this morning. The whole time, you know, the communist playbook says you accuse your opposition of doing what you're doing. I mean, that's, you can read that. That's exactly what they're saying. So maybe the whole time the Democrats were accusing the Republicans of Russian collusion, well, accusing Trump of Russian collusion, now the Russians were uh, hacking into the DNC and all. I said, Maybe not what, what was going on. Maybe they were colluding with the Chinese the whole time. The Democrats colluding with the Chinese. That's kind of an interesting angle. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I'll go back to the conversation Jeff and I had a couple of days ago when Jeff made a point 
that Fox News is being accused of allowing people to lie over the air. I mean, there's a $1.6 billion Dominion voting uh, machine, uh, Dominion voting. I mean, I, I read a little bit yesterday about it. Dominion is going to have a hard time convincing um, a jury that they were financially damaged. I mean, there's no doubt people went on Fox and said things at the direction of Rupert Murdoch that they couldn't prove to be true. I mean, there is no doubt about that. Now, now, once again, I've got some information I'll share with our listeners today. It's a little bit like circumstantial evidence. I mean, I've got some cross tabs that we can go through voter rolls in varying states. There's a website out there, very interactive, that allows you to see how many dead people are still on the rolls, how many people voted in multiple locations. I mean, the public isn't supposed to be privileged to this, but I have friends in high places. I have a lot of friends in low places, but I have a few <laughs> friends in, uh, in high places. But, but, but Jeff's comments were very striking to me because Jeff is arguing, I think, I mean, I'm not sure of this, but I think Jeff is arguing that we should trust Tucker Carlson to tell us the truth. We should trust Sean Hannity to tell us the truth. I would argue that Sean Hannity's version of the truth may be a little bit different than, you know, uh, Rachel Maddow's version of the truth. Does Rachel Maddow believe she's hurting or helping the country when she misleads the American public? Does Sean Hannity believe he's helping or hurting the country when he's misleading the American public? Because they all do it. Let me let me rephrase that. You ready? We all do it. I mean, of course, there's some misleading that goes on on the show. There is never any intent to lie. I mean, I'm not going to do that. But of course, there's a there, there's an, uh, an an intentional strategy I have to convince you the left is worse for America than the right. Now, some of the some of the talking points are I mean, they're, they're very factual. But, but the majority of what we do here is opinion radio. I mean, there, there's a set of facts to be discerned. And your, you know, discerning of the facts may be a little bit different than mine. Um, I mean, I've got article after article. I've got a story here from El Salvador about the number of, um, of gang members and cartel members that they put in prison. And, you know, murders are down. Now, can I prove the reason murders are down is they built these mega prisons in El Salvador and they've locked up alleged murderers? I mean, once again, we have a constitutional system of government. We only put in jail what? Convicted murders, right? I mean, if you're alleged to be a murderer, I mean, uh, isn't Alec Murdoch alleged to be a murderer? Well, I mean, in El Salvador, he'd be in prison. He'd be in one of these mega prisons. So, so th- there's a set of facts there. But but my opinion is, if you allow murderers to stay on the street, they're going to murder again. I can't prove that. I mean, I don't have any indisputable evidence. That's circumstantial. I was thinking about Alec Murdoch this morning. And, and I don't know if, um, I mean, if I were a, a defense lawyer, excuse me, if I were a, uh, a prosecutor today, I didn't get to watch much of it yesterday. We got real busy with podcast stuff yesterday. I had a meeting and then podcasting. If I were the prosecution, nobody saw Alec Murdoch kill his wife and kid. Therefore, we don't know that he did. Right, Rev? Have you ever gone to bed at night, woke up to come to work the next morning, the ditches are full of water? The roads are wet. The driveway's wet. Mm-hmm. There's water on your windshield. Yep. Mr. Baker, did you see it rain? <laughs> I did not. How do you know it did? Because the evidence is very clear. How do you know that 13-year-old cross the street then have a 300-foot water hose <laughs> and walk around your neighborhood just dousing everything with water? How do you know that, Mr. Baker? I suppose that's well, I mean, plausible, there's reasonable doubt, sure, right? I sure. Mean, there, there's a point of reasonable yep, doubt. You're making a good point. You didn't see it rain. Yep. You're not sure it rained. 
but but the circumstantial evidence leads you to believe there's a 99.9999. Yeah, I mean, there is a chance that there is no question about it. There is a chance some 13-year-old woke up at 2 o'clock this morning, bought every water hose at Schofield's, and walked around the neighborhood, you know, just spraying the roads, the homes, the yards, the ditches, um, you know, my truck, my car. There, there has to be the ability to think through some of these things in a rational and, and reasonable way. So Jeff is arguing that America is failing and America is troubled because we can't trust Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson to tell us the truth. Now, I would argue you can't trust Joe Scarborough and Rachel Maddow to tell you the truth. But, but I've convinced myself that, that those aren't my sources for truth. Tucker is a source of information and opinion. I accept that. When I turn the TV on, Fox at 8 o'clock, you know what I hear? I hear Tucker give his opinion of what's happening in the world. I mean, it, it's, it's overlaid with facts, no question about it. If I turn to MSNBC, I hear kind of a different, uh, a, a different positioning of those facts. Sometimes they're facts, sometimes they aren't. In, in other words, I don't expect Fox to be the truth arbiter in America. I don't expect MSNBC to be the truth arbiter. But, but shouldn't we expect better the FBI? The CIA, the CDC, I mean, it, is it the CDC's responsibility to tell us the truth or their opinion? I mean, we know they lied. We know the FBI lied. We know the FBI was complicit in the Steele dossier. We know that now. An FBI agent pled guilty to that. But, but is Jeff bothered more by Hannity and Tucker than he is Comey and Strzok? And, and some of these other, you know, bureaucrats within these government agencies that have the authority and power of the federal government. It's just odd to me that somebody would say, I go to Rachel Maddow to get the truth, and I trust every word that comes out of her mouth. Just as I think it's a little bit odd to say, I trust Tucker Carlson to tell the truth every second of every day. I never expect Tucker to interject a biased opinion. Of course he's going to interject a biased opinion, but the FBI, the CIA, the federal government, Congress, the CDC, the WHO, the NIH, they're not Tucker Carlson. They're not Rachel Maddow. We should expect those folks to tell us the unbiased, unvarnished truth, and they simply have not done that. Take a break. Back at a few. So we mentioned the other day, talking about Fox's lineup, Trey Gowdy has a show on Sunday. Trey Gowdy said this past Sunday that, um, I, mean, he, I mean, obviously he's reading the teleprompter, got a producer and, and a lot of other staff involved at Fox News. But he said, and, um, and I mean, Trey's been a fairly conservative Republican. And I'm not saying this is a matter of conservative or liberal because it's not. I think it goes back to this, um, I think Breeze called it jet lag. That's kind of an interesting descriptive. Um, the political party, with an R, I mean, the, the Republican Party has historically been the party that is more interventionist, more globalist-minded, uh, a little more elitist, more corporatist, right? I mean, it, when, when you vote for the Republican Party, you're voting for the unfettered free market. And, and if that means, you know, wealthy people get wealthier and poorer people get poorer, that isn't my problem because I'm a limited government guy and I don't like the distortions to the private sector. Well, I mean, we found out the hard way that the Republicans were just as corrupt in rigging the economy as, as the Democrats were. But, but Trey Gowdy said, and I found this interesting, and once again, I like and respect Trey, but Trey said uh, about, and he was insulting or insinuating, uh, insulting would be an overstatement, 
He was insinuating that many of his Republican brethren just don't get it. They don't understand how important Ukraine is. He may be right. I mean, I may be more politically illiterate than I think I am. I may not understand the nuances and intricacies of, uh, of American safety and security in regards to Ukraine. So, so that's a fair debate. By our not defending Ukraine and allowing Putin to be empowered and more of an aggressive expansionist, that, that's a fair debate. I'm very comfortable in my position, but I would imagine Trey, Lindsey, you know, Mitt Romney, they are probably very comfortable in their position, very confident in their position. But the next thing Trey said, uh, it didn't floor me, but but it, it like, wow, okay. He said that anywhere democracy, that, that American forces are obligated to stand anywhere democracy is um is at stake or is at risk. Well, I went back and looked at the, um, I mean, actually at some of the, um, some of NATO's own information. And they have what they call a democracy matrix. And in the democracy matrix, before the Americans got involved, Ukraine was beneath Burma, Mexico, and Hungary. So it's not some uh, democracy. It's never been a functioning democracy. I mean, do, do its people defend its borders and its national sovereignty in the face of a, what, what, a uh, powerful, aggressive expansionist? Yeah. Okay. But, but don't shoot over the over the top i mean don't tell me that that this is a um this is a that what putin's motivation is is um to stop a democracy from existing in his border i mean they're shuttering churches they're they're, they're restricting the free press Zelensky, folks some trust me on this now Zelensky's not who he says he is let me say that again Zelensky is not who he says he is he is a power hungry leader he enjoys and relishes the attention, the notoriety, the fame. Um, and, and Ron DeSantis gave an interview uh, over the weekend, and it was about his book. He was on Fox and Friends. And, um, and I kind of want to preface DeSantis' comments because, guys, he's about to announce. I mean, it won't be long now. I think it'll be within a month that he announces he is a, an official candidate for president of the United States. But once again, um, Trey Gowdy says, that, that America will always defend democracy at risk. In essence, arguing that Ukraine is a democracy. Go back and research Ukraine. There's nothing about Ukraine that is democratic. Very little about Ukraine that is democratic. Now, if a person, you, me, our listeners, are capable of rooting for Vladimir Putin to be embarrassed, to be beaten, to be weakened, um, fine. I get that. I mean, I'd be in that camp. I don't want Putin to win, but I'm not accepting this historical revisionism that, that is so widely accepted and this, this what, Rev, um, this highly idealized version of Ukraine. Ukraine is not what the, the political leadership at either party are telling the American people it is. It's never been a functioning democracy. Once again, in the democracy matrix of NATO, <laughs> they have it somewhere in the neighborhood of Burma, Mexico, and Hungary. So, yes, I hope Putin loses. I hope he's beaten. I hope he's weakened. I hope he's embarrassed. But I refuse to accept this revisionist history or this highly idealized version of Ukraine. Um, and I do think we should ask questions about where all of this is headed. 
And that's what Ron DeSantis is asking. That's what the majority of, um, you know, I guess those of us called isolationists by the mainstream media. DeSantis was on um, Fox and Friends promoting his book, but, but he basically said, and I'll give his exact quote, but I want to couch it this way because um, this is not my word. This is Axios. You ready? Um, an automatic lockstepping support for every foreign entanglement. If you're not in that camp, you're considered isolationist. Let me read that again. If you're not an automatic lockstepping supporter for every foreign entanglement, then you're considered an isolationist. How crazy is this? I want to read it verbatim. Here's Ron DeSantis on Fox and Friends. You ready? This is the transcript of the show. Ukraine has a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. Is this, con- is this contention even debatable? The administration has offered no identifiable endgame other than, quote-unquote, beating Russia, which is fantastical. What does this entail? Does it mean we keep sending weapons and billions of dollars into Russia is ejected from the Donbas region of western Ukraine or until Zelensky takes back Crimea as well, which would surely escalate the war into a new bloody phase? Or does beating Russia happen when Zelensky finally rides a jeep up to the Kremlin? That might take a while. That's not an isolationist statement. That's not even an anti-interventionist statement. That's asking for clarity. That's a responsible politician engaging the American public with an explanation about what a victory is. We're not defending democracy in Ukraine. We're trying to embarrass and weaken Putin. So stop telling the American people something that is fundamentally dishonest at level with the American people and say, hey, we believe that Putin wants to get the band back together. And the band could be bigger and better than ever because we believe he has a more intimate partnership with Xi than he had when they were the former Soviet Union. But stop telling me that we're investing north of $100 billion and beginning to contemplate whether American fighter pilots will fly over Ukraine in the name of preserving democracy. It's dishonest. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. This this may be a little bit off uh, topic, but I think it kind of goes along with it. Um, I don't want to talk about the trial, but, uh, but Ken, if you get a chance to go back and listen to the prosecution's closing arguments, I declare that as he talked, I kept hearing Ken Ard making the same argument when he talked about the financial part of uh, Murdoch. I kept hearing you say, I mean, he actually used the words Ponzi scheme. He kept, just everything that he said kept, it kept uh, sounding like what we as a government are, are doing financially. All the misgivings that he did, it sounds just like what we did. So when you go back and listen to that, listen to it with that mindset. And you're going to hear yourself talking. Sure. Thank you, Bobby. You appreciate it. That's kind of an interesting analogy. Mm-hmm. Bobby's arguing that as they try to convict Alec Murdoch of murder, they, it sounds like they're trying to convict the federal government of misleading and, and, and you know, diabolically creating these Ponzi schemes that will eventually end in our demise or our economic failure, whatever uh, is on the other side. I've just landed here. I actually had a tweet, excuse me, an, uh, an email yesterday sent to me by a friend of mine about family annihilators. That's kind of an odd um, thing to study or try and better understand, but it's a psychological profile of the family annihilators. 
and it, it it talks about some of the criteria. I mean, it's it's once again it's psycho babble. I'll agree with that. Um, it's not clinical. It's well, I mean, I guess it is clinical because it's um it's a lot of psychologists and and psychiatrists getting together about the um the mental makeup of someone who does something so dastardly. They talk about Chris Watts murdering his pregnant wife and two daughters. I'm going to, wow, I'm going to imagine that. You know, it doesn't happen often, but it does. And they're talking about the general psychological profile of the family annihilator um, killer. And they're, they're, you know, this phenomenon of familicide, I think is what it's called. Um, it's, it's, they admit, as, as clinicians, that it's new, it's unexplored. Um, but it is within the, um, the criminology field and they've got professors and quotes and research and studies. And I'm like, I mean, that, that would be a pretty sick job to psychologically understand what about somebody leads them down the road of, um, of killing their entire family. Um, now, now these are scholars and they've identified four common areas that might be considered, um, the cause of these murders. You ready? A breakdown of the family relationship and issues getting access to the children, financial hardship, cultural honor killings, or mental illness. But those are the, um, I don't want to say the prerequisites, but but those are some of the criteria um, that they evaluate and try to better understand. And um, and th- this study, I think, goes back to 2013. And in 71 family murder cases, 59%, uh, excuse me, of, of the 71 family annihilator cases, 59 uh, was a male. 50% were between the age of 30 and 40 when they committed um, the crime. Um, 32% of the cases were stabbing. Uh, 15 of the cases, carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, 69% of the cases, the male murderer committed suicide after the murder. After the murder. So that's the oddity of this. I mean, the oddity of this is, and I'm talking about profiles. Uh, once again, who knows? I mean, you don't know. I don't know. Bobby doesn't know. Um, nobody knows except Alec Murdoch and maybe if he didn't pull the trigger, um, the ones that did, but, but the oddity in this is uh, along with Chris Watts. And I think that's why they kind of analyzed that case in association with this case. It normally ends with a gunshot to the head of the perpetrator of the crimes. In other words, you kill the, the wife, you kill the kids, and then you kill yourself. Well, in this situation, um, and I guess that's some of the, um, I mean, we may hear this when the defense, uh, presents their closing arguments that, you know. Um, the majority of times someone annihilates their family, they, they eventually kill themselves by overwhelming, uh, percentage, but I didn't get to watch. I watched a little bit, but not much of the, um, of the prosecution's closing arguments, but, but I did think about the argument, the argument I'd make. And I used it this morning when I told Rev, um, we wake up some mornings and it's quite clear. It rained the night before hardly any of us saw the rain. Sometimes we hear the rain, sometimes we don't. But when we wake up and the driveway's wet and the road's wet and there's water on the windshield, we know it rained. That circumstantial evidence, is that beyond a reasonable doubt? I guess to some degree it appears on how you wired. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. It doesn't matter to me what Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post says. She's a... um. I mean, she's weirdly um, called a conservative. She's not a conservative at all. She's a um, she's conservative enough for the Washington Post. I'll just leave it 
um, there. But when DeSantis, and I want to read this again. You ready? Mm-hmm. Ukraine has a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. Is this contention even debatable? The administration has offered no identifiable endgame other than, quote, unquote, beating Russia. This is fantastical. What does that entail? Does it mean we keep sending weapons and billions of dollars into Russia's ejected from the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine or until Zelensky takes back Crimea as well, which would surely escalate the war into a new bloody phase? Or does beating Russia happen when Zelensky finally rides a jeep up to the Kremlin? That might take a while. That is a very measured but reasonable statement to make. We're talking about whether or not, and once again, go back to the democracy matrix. You got Ukraine, you got Burma, you got Mexico, you got Hungary, all in the same neighborhood. Ukraine has never been a functioning democracy. And when Trey Gowdy on Fox News says that anywhere democracy is at risk, America will stand tall. Okay, let's let's make that assumption. Is Ukraine democratic enough for 130, 40, 50 million dollar billion dollar a year investment? I say no. I get it's people want to defend its borders. I get it desires to be sovereign. I understand it's dealing with a powerful expansionist aggressor that we don't have to deal with. I accept some modicum of responsibility. But once again, America's spending on its own what the rest of NATO member nations are spending collectively, much more. I mean, they've not collectively spent $25 billion. We're on the hook, and I'm talking about we the people are on the hook for a $130, $35 billion first year of a defense of Ukraine. So I'm not a pro-Putin apologist. I'm not a Russian sympathizer. Being, being of dissent doesn't mean I'm unpatriotic. I mean, when did being, uh, you know, uh, w- dissent is not unpatriotic. At all, I think there's a there's an obligation some of us have to question the power and authority of our federal government, and in in modern times, Rev, the Republican Party, I, I guess, because they're talking about this as Biden's war, but but this is not Biden's war. Lindsey Graham has been just as supportive as Joe Biden. Mitch McConnell says more than one time this is the most important issue facing the American people. Well, Mitch, explain to us in your own words, Lindsay, explain to us in your own words why this is more important than fentanyl making its way across the, the, the southern border. Explain to us why Ukraine is more important than $33 trillion in debt. Explain to us why Ukraine is more important than a Supreme Court decision that may force people who didn't go to college and didn't borrow money to pay back those who did go to college and did borrow money. It's just hard for me to believe that the American people think that. Now, the political leadership may because they're in bed with a lot of different forces. I don't know about you, Rev. I don't get any calls from Raytheon lobbyists. Not lately. I, I don't get <laughs> letters in the mail from Honeywell. Or never. I mean, I, I never get, um, I don't know that uh, McDonnell Douglas has ever had a fundraiser for yours truly. But we know they do for the others. Is the obligation to appease the donor class and the um, and the lobbying class, or is the obligation to do your job on behalf of the American people? Because when you look at kind of the um, the non-globalist, non-interventionist America First agenda, it really was birthed out of a belief, a suspicion that most Americans have about their government, that they're doing things that have not bettered the lives of the average American people. Do you believe globalism has been good for the average American? I mean, there's a debate to have there. 
cheaper prices. You know, you go to Walmart, you buy a television for $199. Why? It's made in China. I mean, I get all that. I get competitive forces in the marketplace. But by and large, in general, in totality, in its in its entirety, has globalism been better or worse for the average American worker? Has intervention been better or worse for the average American worker? Is $130 billion spent in Ukraine bettering the lives of the average American? No, on all fronts. Absolutely not. So who is entitled to make the decisions that lead a political party to do X, Y, or Z? That's my question. I understand political leadership. The people of South Carolina voted Lindsey Graham in office. The people of Kentucky voted Mitch McConnell into office. They certainly have a right to espouse their personal views. But don't they have to do that in concert with where the general public is? And it looks to me like support for our involvement in Ukraine is is waning. And I can tell you it's waning because we don't have any clarity. I mean, $130 billion, And all we see now is somebody say, you know, whatever it takes. I stand with Ukraine. No, I need more than that. You may not. I mean, you may be comfortable watching Seinfeld, football, basketball, baseball, and hearing a sound bitish political commentary or comment or two. No, I got to know a little more than that. I don't buy what Trey Gowdy's selling because we're not defending democracy because Ukraine has never been a functioning democracy. So what are we doing? We're trying to deplete Russia of its resources. Tell me that, and I'll have... Uh, more comfort. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Talking about Ukraine. Um, I don't want to say we've beaten that dead horse, but we've let it, uh, I've let it known exactly where I stand in regards to Ukraine. And I want you to understand, guys, my issue is not whether or not supporting Ukraine. I mean, I, I think there's a very philosophical and legitimate political debate about what America needs to do in regards to impeding the progress of an expansionist aggressor. But I do. I think there's a very legitimate argument, and I will give Lindsey Graham every opportunity, or Mitch McConnell, every opportunity they need to explain. But that's not what the debate is. The, the debate should be, what is the end game? Okay, let's make the assumption that they're right, and it's in America's best interest to protect Ukraine from a from a, a an aggressive expansionist, I mean, let, let's make that assumption. I, I you know, I, I would agree to that to some degree, but 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 what is where is there any finality? Is there any point in time? I mean, is is five years and a trillion dollars? I mean, are we willing as Americans to invest five years and a trillion dollars of a defense budget in the name of protecting Ukraine or weakening Russia? Because once again, Russia's not going to run out of money. They're not going to run out of military arsenal. It's a communist nation. They don't. It's, it's not like the government votes on anything. I mean, they decide at their own volition what their priorities are. When I say they, I'm talking about he. Vladimir Putin, by and large, um, decides. But once again, the debate that I want to have is not whether or not we should be in Ukraine. That is a most legitimate debate. But how does anybody fix their mouth, as my mom would say, to, to suggest that anything is possible, that, that whatever it takes. I mean, just think of how dangerous that statement is, Rev. I mean, we have the largest me. military in the history of mankind, and our political leadership is saying whatever it takes. If, if we had a serious journalism profession, someone would say exactly what does that mean when you infer whatever it takes 
dissect that a bit for me. Help me understand, because I can paint a hypothetical for you. Does whatever it takes mean 10 years and $2 trillion? Does whatever it takes mean half of our defense budget in the name of protecting and preserving sovereignty in Ukraine? What does whatever it takes mean? And don't forget, the opponent has made uh, inferences about nuclear treaties and Wow. But I mean, and, and you've got you've got China as as powerful as they've ever been. Trump announced some um, China tariffs yesterday we'll get into as the show progresses. So so it's not that I'm delegitimizing the debate about Ukraine. I think there's a very central debate about the significance of Ukraine in, in global security. Okay, I accept that. I'm not a moron. I, I'm a little bit more anti interventionist than most Republicans, but I'm not a moron. I'll accept that as a reasonable premise. But, but that's not the debate we're having. The debate we're having is there are no limits to what we're going to do to stop Putin from invading or taking over uh, certain territories in Ukraine. That is an absurd premise to base your debate on. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. We have Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Morning, Rick. Uh, hey, this is a heck of a topic y'all got this morning. Well, figure uh, it out for us, Rick. Feels- it appeals to the historian in me. Look, <laughs> after, you know, the the treaty after World War One caused worldwide depression. So we went to Marshall Plan, NATO, and that did work a lot better. But going back to history, George Washington said, avoid permanent entanglements and stay out of European affairs. And we've got ourselves in a permanent European alliance. It's really none of our business. We don't want to see the Soviet empire come back. But right now, we need to just mind our business, you know, send thoughts and prayers, but billions of dollars is out of control. So I'm agreeing with you 100% there. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Um, Rick normally takes an exception or two with things I say. I was kind of expecting a little pushback there. And once again, I think Rick would agree to this. There is a legitimate debate. I'm being redundant, but I think this is important. There is a legitimate debate about what America needs to do to stop uh, an, an aggressive expansionist. I, I do buy that. I buy into that. But but what are the limits to that role? Why are we on the hook for $130 billion when NATO nations who border the former Soviet Union have spent only a less than 1% of the GDP? Let's be fair to the nations. Let's take the dollars out of the equation. Let's talk about as a percent or as a share of GDP. We're at about 3.14% of uh, share of GDP. Our investments in our military incursions around the world are at about 3% of GDP. The rest of the world is less than one. There, I think Germany's one and a half. I think Italy may be one and a quarter. But the majority of nations are less than 1% of GDP. So here's what the world is saying. The world has said, we believe this alliance between Russia and China are dangerous. America, you need to solve it. I mean, I, you know, our necks are on the line. Our way of lives are at risk. But we're not willing to invest in our military to the degree you folks have had a propensity to. So in usual fashion, America, won't you come over here and clean up this mess for us? And I'm damn it tired of that. I'm tired of the world looking to America to fix all of the world's problems. That's not our responsibility. Neoconservatism for a generation convinced many, many Republicans that that was our calling. That was what we were to be responsible for. And I think a lot of American voters with an R beside their name woke up and said, wow, you know, this expansion, excuse me, this um, intervention, this globalism, 
that this American imperialism, it really hadn't made our way of lives any better as Americans. Maybe it's made the world safer. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I mean, we could have a legitimate debate about did we make the world more unsafe by what we did in the Middle East? I mean, there's a legitimate debate. The trillions of dollars we spent in making the world a more secure place by intervening in the affairs of Middle Eastern countries that at the end, we made the world less safe. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. Hey, as always, you got a great show, Ken. And uh, you're covering everything. I mean, is there anything left except for maybe uh, the real murder suspect they haven't covered, and he's really covered his tail well, is Cash the dog, who actually has prehensile retractable thumbs, broke out and got a shotgun and killed the Paul and Maggie. That, that's the only wild story I hadn't heard from Mr. Murdoch. I, that's my view on him. If if he's talking, he's spinning a lie. But uh, that I'm sure he's a likable guy. I'm absolutely positive he's a likable guy. And uh, many members of his family uh, that I've come in contact with are very likable, nice people. But I'm not sure I'd want Murdoch walking behind me in the woods if we were hunting, because especially if he had a liability policy that would cover me. That's uh, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking. But uh, on the uh, Ukraine front, that th- that's a can of worms. And I think it's just a matter of time until the uh, climate people figure out that uh, – if they really want to, that some of them really do want to cool down the earth a couple of degrees. And sooner or later, they're going to figure out that there's the easy way to do it. If we just turn loose a few hundred nukes in uh, strategic locations, so uh, we can we can uh, get a, a nuclear winter going and uh, cool down the earth uh, maybe for decades. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one. 0937 is a number. I'm looking for an article that I found yesterday. Can't find it. It's a CNN article, and it basically goes into um, the – the uh, it's an opinion piece. I ought to be careful blaming CNN. I got accused of being uh, a plagiarizing early this morning. Um, I don't know what they're, they're accusing me of. I don't plagiarize. When I read a source, I quote the source. I just read um, something here from uh, the American conservative about Ukraine, and uh, I gave credit to the um, – where they're slotted in the democracy matrix. I think the guy was accusing me of making up the rain story. Um, I didn't make the rain story up, but Creighton Waters didn't either. I mean, that I, I think I've seen movies where lawyers say about circumstantial evidence, you know, it rains at night. You wake up in the morning and the ground's wet and the driveway's wet and there's rain on your windshield. You didn't actually see it rain. I mean, that that's kind of a Matlock story. And um, I didn't coin that, that, um, that phrase, nor did nor did Creighton Waters. I'm careful to make sure we give credit where credit's due. And, um, and this is a very discombobulated way that we compile information. Rev's seen it before. I'll take a page of the National Review and staple it to a page of the Wall Street Journal and staple it to a page of, um, of Vox Magazine and we'll juxtapose and, um, and contradict one of those articles uh, as opposed to the other. Um, you know, I was thinking about DeSantis and Trump. So, um, I, you know, I'm not guilty. I am guilty of um, not having, what am I trying to say? Every good idea has already been thought of. 
so we do recreate in our own colorful way some of the some of the better ideas sure. but um but we always intend just unlike the president we always intend to give the credit where where the credit's due um but but there's kind of an interesting dilemma in in American politics today and I was thinking about Ukraine and you know what what DeSantis said and I think the reason DeSantis has resonated with the American people and I'm talking about Republican voters in particular is the same reason that Donald Trump resonates, and that is you don't get a lot of word salads. I mean, Buttigieg, Obama, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, I mean, I'm trying to be fair here and bipartisan. I mean, they're, they're a lot with D beside their name. They're a lot with R. Buttigieg's the best there's ever been. Buttigieg says a lot, and then he leaves, and you say, what the hell did he say? You know, he didn't say anything. I don't know. Kamala Harris is pretty close. Well, I mean, she's think? pretty close, yeah. but... It gets a little bit loony, incoherent. Yeah, I mean, with Buttigieg, you're kind of like, okay, is he is he that much smarter than I am? A little bit like Obama. I mean, is he are they that much smarter than I am? But then you realize that their intent is to play this game of what I'll call word salad politics, and you know, Trump doesn't play a lot of word salad politics. I mean, it's it's pretty easy. You may like what he says, you may not like what he says, but he doesn't confuse you a lot. With his, with his verbiage and with his language and with his um, extensive vocabulary. Uh, Buttigieg and his extensive vocabulary um, gets very confusing at times, but he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Obama sounded like he knew what he was talking about because, once again, expansive vocabularies, word salads. Trump and DeSantis, I think, resonate with Republican voters, not because they're men of few words. They aren't. They're men of many words. But there, there, there are not a lot of word salads that you get from Donald Trump or you get from um from Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley is very much word saladish. I mean, when when Nikki talks, you're like, okay, that was a great speech. You get in your car to go home, she really didn't say anything. Really, no meat on that bone. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. Great televisions. Senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker is with us as he always, not always, but most Thursday morning. John makes time to join us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? We are doing well, sir. Trying to make heads or tails of the world around us. Politics is a, um, it's a pretty crazy creature right now, John. I've been around politics for probably uh, 20 years, and I've never seen it as volatile as it is today. Um, I don't want to say divisive, but volatile would probably be a better word. Yesterday, Merrick Garland appeared uh, before Congress. Uh, anything stand out or revealing to you about Merrick Garland's testimony? Well, he was in the hot seat yesterday, his first time appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee in this new Congress. Of course, Democrats still control the Senate, so they still control the Senate Judiciary Committee, Ken, but uh, some very tough questions coming from Republicans on that committee, including from Chuck Grassley. Uh, He's a very senior Republican on that committee from Iowa, asking some tough questions regarding the Hunter Biden investigation, where that's going. It's being conducted by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. That's been going on for a really long time, Ken. And uh, for most of the answers, uh, he said, look, I can't comment on an ongoing DOJ investigation, but there was one answer in particular in which I think he made news. He said it would be a national security problem if Hunter Biden took money from a foreign government as a means to influence the Biden administration. Uh, And that, to me, uh, made some news. And uh, we'll see 
uh, what Republicans do with that comment uh, that was made by Merrick Garland yesterday. John, it's almost like, and I want to get your take on this. You're, you're an old hand at this. It's almost like the, the more sensational the questions, the more uh, aggressive the questions, the more the elected official is rewarded by their respective parties, and it becomes more of a political demonstration than it was a pursuit of the truth. Is that fair criticism in, in the way we have these, you know, administrative officials before Congress? In other words, I mean, Josh Hawley has a constituency. Uh, Rand Paul has a constituency. Uh, right. Chuck Schumer has a constituency. And very often I feel their job is not to try or their, 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 their politics is getting in the way of them legitimately trying to do their job, whether it's, you know, um, some of the Supreme Court justices and whether we've um, prosecuted people who threatened some of these justices. It just seems like to me, the, and I, I'm not naive to this. I'm going to have been in politics, so I'm not naive to any of this. But, but we're to the point now that scoring political points is far more important than finding out certain answers to certain questions. Well, certain public officials are interested in just what you're talking about. They're interested in finding the answers, getting at the truth. And then there are others that, uh, as you point out, are trying to play to their political base. Uh, you know, you, I think you see this all the time with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Is she interested necessarily in finding the truth or is she more interested in getting clicks, you know, on her on her website or, or on a, her social media. I think she's an example of that type of politician. Um, but look, I, I think that there are a lot of politicians that are in Washington, D.C. for the right reasons, you know, to try to better their communities, to better their states, to, to get the answers, to hold people to account. Um, I'm not going to question the motives of various uh, members uh, that you cited. You know, I, I, I would imagine the people that you mentioned – whether it's Ram Paul or Josh Hawley are trying to do the right thing. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you do have certain members in, in Congress, there's no doubt about it, Ken, that, that, are do, that do try to play to their political bases. You're a lawyer. I'm not. The Supreme Court forgiveness, the, the student debt forgiveness case at the Supreme Court is very relatable yes. to the majority of us. Many, many Americans sure. have student debt. Many, many Americans are in default deferment or some version of delayed payment. Um what exactly, as, as you being a lawyer and somebody who understands Washington, what do you think we should be paying close to or close attention to um, as the Supreme Court sorts through the, the testimony given um, earlier this week about student debt forgiveness? Well, I was in the Supreme Court for both of those cases for oral arguments uh, concerning that student loan uh, forgiveness program that was introduced by the Secretary of Education, wiping away $400 billion in student loan debt. And the, the conservatives on the court were very troubled by the idea that the Secretary of Education, uh, he alone, could do that, could take that action, rather than Congress. You know, it seems to me Congress has the power of the purse, and that's the view uh, of the Supreme Court, and that's the reason why they've struck down other executive actions by the president before, whether you're talking about the eviction moratorium executive action or whether you're talking about the vaccine mandate for large employers. Uh, what uh, the conservatives on the court had a problem with was the fact that there was no explicit directive coming from Congress for the executive branch to do those actions. And I think that's the reason why that the president's uh, action as it relates to student loan debt is going to be found unconstitutional.
But, but John, you're, you're a lawyer. I want to get your take on this because you could inform our audience much better than I can. I read the New York Times yesterday, and I want to quote them. The legality of one of the most ambitious and expensive executive actions in the nation's history, the Biden administration's plan to wipe out more than $400 billion in student debt because right. of the coronavirus pandemic. But, but who has standing here? I mean, the word standing is thrown around a lot in regards to this case. Yeah. Explain to our listeners, if you don't mind, exactly what standing is, and do you think that'll be an issue as the court deals with this this decision? Well, I've never been – I've been in the Supreme Court for many cases, dozens of cases over the years. And uh, I have never been in the Supreme Court for two cases in which so much – uh, time was devoted to whether or not the parties had standing. What is standing? It means that when you bring a case, you have to show that you personally were harmed by the actions against the person you're bringing the case against. Uh, and so you have a number of states that brought this action against the Biden administration, and those states have to show that they were harmed by the president taking the action that he did in which he wiped away 400 billion dollars in student loan debt. Now, some states say they were harmed because uh, their student loan processing uh, centers uh, lost money or will lose money as a result of this action uh, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Uh, And then the other case, the two individuals bringing the case against the Biden administration, they claim they were harmed because they're not uh, a party in which they're taking advantage of the full amount of the student loan debt. debt removal that others uh, can take advantage of, a full $20,000. So that's the, the standing issue for both of those cases. And I must tell you, you even had conservatives question aloud whether or not those states had standing, whether they have actually been harmed by the action of the Biden administration. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time this morning. Have a great weekend weekend, sir. You too, Ken. Thanks a lot. Have a great day, great weekend. We'll talk next week for sure. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker, as usual, joining us on a uh, on a Thursday morning. I found that kind of interesting that the New York Times um, described um, the case by, I mean, their, their words, not mine, uh, the legality of one of the most ambitious and expensive executive ac- actions in the nation's history, the Biden administration plan to wipe out more than $400 billion dollars in student debt because of the coronavirus pandemic. I love making things complicated. I mean, we, we talk for 20 hours every single week about issues that, that affect the majority of our lives. You have an opinion. I have an opinion. Sometimes my opinion is different than yours. Sometimes it's very similar to yours. But I don't know how anybody can justify rationally. I mean, I understand self-serving. I mean, I understand... <laughs> You know, this is good for me. I mean, the Rev struggled with this. I mean, philosophically, you know it makes no sense. But but you also believe that you were gouged or your family was gouged mm-hmm. in what they were forced to pay to be educated or higher educated um, because of the government's involvement in this. The, the, um, the scheme to lend people money to get degrees that may or may not be uh, that much to their benefit. I mean, any degree, I guess, to some le- at some level is beneficial. I mean, whether it's Shakespearean theater. I mean, you got a guy that doesn't know Shakespearean theater, a guy, a guy that does. They're equal other than that. I'd probably choose the guy that did know a little more about Shakespearean theater. Maybe a party wanting to read poetry or, or something like that. But, but I think the, um, the extent of the program is what most people have a problem with. And, and I think in retrospect, those who borrowed money to get these degrees are a little bit conflicted because you know you were played. 
Now, now you could say, well, I didn't have a choice. I mean, you know, the world has built an economy around, you know, how educated you are. I mean, it's a little bit nonsensical, but we've allowed this world to be created where game wardens have to have college degrees. You know, this job has to have a college degree. Why? Well, I mean, you're not supposed to ask that. What do you mean I'm not supposed to ask that? Well, that question really doesn't have a good answer. It just that's Sometimes it bees like that. I mean, that would be the answer given. So there are many, many, many um, hundreds of thousands of Americans, probably millions of Americans, that know deep in their heart. I'm looking at Rev. That know deep in their heart they were hoodwinked a little bit. But you don't think you had a choice. I mean, you don't have an extra 50 grand laying around not spoken for. Your kid wants to go to college. You've been convinced he needs to go to college. So you do what? Is in your kid's best interest. You love your kid unconditionally. Boys. You want that kid to have the best life, a better life than you had. So society is not suggested. They've insisted. They've required that that kid go to college. Now, once again, that's the debate. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'll make a deal today. As conservative as I am, as philosophically opposed to paying off student debt, or, or, or people who don't have student debt didn't go to college, paying off student debt for people who did go to college, that is a philosophical sin in the extreme as far as I'm concerned. But I'm willing to put my philosophical bent in my back pocket for just a second if you'll make a deal with me. And here's my deal. You ready? Let's hear it. I'll pay off $400 billion in student debt. It's egregious. It's nonsensical. It's un-American. It's philosophically against everything I believe in. But I'm willing to go in the tank for $400 billion if we're willing to get the federal government out of the student, out of the college lending business. Let colleges figure out another way to finance that four-year degree. Uh, if, if the family doesn't have the money, let the, let the family go to the bank. Let the, let the, the university set up some sort of, of lending apparatus. We don't need the American taxpayer not guaranteeing. You're no longer the guarantor of the debt. That's, that's the misnomer. I mean, I even had to be convinced of that. Because for a long time after the fact, I was convinced I was the guarantor of student debt. Oh, no, 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 no. You are the issuer of student debt. Go back and read some of the Obamacare legislation. What do you mean read the Obamacare legislation? That's health care. That doesn't have anything to do with student debt. Give, give, give her a liberal an inch, they'll take a mile. I'll assure you of that. <laughs> so there's some language in the Obamacare legislation that basically turns the government from guarantor to issuer of debt. So the debt's on the books regardless. Of that, that, there's no way to get that debt off the book. In fact, if we pay off $400 billion, excuse me, if we forgive $400 billion in debt, the federal deficit increases by $400 billion. I mean, that's money not coming in any longer. I mean, we've, swat, we, we've forgiven that debt. So that money is still on the, um, the, the liability side, but there's not revenue coming in to service that debt. So it does change the balance sheet of the United States of America by $400 billion. Now, $400 billion ain't baby crap alongside how much student debt we do have. There's a good Sheriff Buford T. Justice reference, alongside. <laughs> You got to be from the country to know what long side means. Um, huh? Long side means compared to. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Long side, yeah. Um, Rev's career is a whole lot better alongside mine. <laughs> I hear you. Okay. And now you understand, right? I'm with you. So, so why say compared to? Right. Okay. I got you. Say it, Rev. 
<laughs> long time. There you go. You did good. Take a break. We'll be back <laughs> in just a few moments. And we talked a second ago about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act that I referred to as the not-so-affordable care act. Not only did it um, turn the issuer into, excuse me, the, um, the guarantor into the issuer, it also made health insurance unbelievably expensive for people who really and truly don't need it much. Uh, the only way it worked was to allow healthy people to subsidize the cost of unhealthy people. It was truly the socialization of private health insurance. You got open enrollment. You got ACA qualifiers. You got all sorts of complications. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, some people have adjusted. Capitalism prevails. There's a guy named Christian Levis who Rev and I have spoken with that is in the business of saving you money. If you're paying for your own health insurance, if you're on a COBRA plan, if you're uninsured, call Christian Levis at 864-362-4700. 864-362-4700. Go to the website, realchoicehealthcare.com. If you're reasonably healthy, if you're under the age of 65, you don't need maternity coverage. You don't need a lot of other um, add-ons that the ACA required us to have. Um, the government right now, by and large, chooses your plan for you. Christian allows you to choose your plan for you. Um, they're quality plans that they're chosen and managed by whom? You, not the government. After all, when you think about it, it's your health. It's your choice, so go to realchoicehealthcare.com or call Christian Levis at 864-362-4700. Um, I think you'll be glad you did. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, y'all were talking about standing. As far as standing goes, every taxpaying American has paid off his student loan has standing in this because we're the ones that's going to have to uh, pay this bill off. But you're in the Obamacare. You, you remember they were collecting about fifty-five billion dollars a year in interest, and they just took that and put it towards Obamacare to make it seem like it was cheaper. But this is the student loan. We can't win because I was listening to Presley and Omar and AOC out in front of the Supreme Court hollering about how student loans hurt the black and brown communities. Well, for the longest time, they were out there hollering, we need more opportunities. They need availability of student loans so black and brown people can go to school. Well, they got what they wanted. And now they've got this student loan debt. Oh, they can't afford it, and, and, and they can't start a life, and you need to forgive it. And then they take and put it on the Heroes Act, which is, you know, an offshoot of the Soldiers and Sailors Act. Whenever 9-11 happened and all the troops had to go overseas after that, they put a pause on their student loans until they got back home. They didn't cancel the debt. They just put a pause on the payment, just like they put a pause on payments since, like, 2020. Until now, they've made no payments, and now he wants to just cancel the debt. Well, you know, we we can't win this fight because it'll always be against the taxpayer. 
I mean, the, the fact that he's using a military exemption just really smacks him. But then again, we don't need a military anyway, so what the hell. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Joe's talking about the um, the military. It's, it's the HEROES Act, the Higher Education Relief Opportunity for Student Act, which, um, which, which basically, I mean, they're arguing gives the Secretary of Education the power to waive or modify any of these regulatory provisions. Uh, and, and that was normally during a war national emergency. And when we declared the pandemic a national emergency, some of the liberal Democrats saw it as an opportunity. I mean, let's be honest, some Republicans saw it as an opportunity to, um, to as they always do, a money grab. Some of the polling is interesting. Um, 88% of Democrats support forgiving student debt. 58% of independents support forgiving student debt. 37% of Republicans support forgiving student debt. That's a very self-interested vote. And I get it. I mean, that's the mindset. I mean, we're all self-interested, right? I mean, if Rev and I are in a foxhole and somebody's got to die, as much as I love Rev, <laughs> I'd rather be him than yours truly. I mean, we Thanks. all wake up every day. I mean, I wake up every day thinking about my family before I think about yours. I mean, that we're, we're, we're all wired. Remind that me way. not to end up alongside well, I mean, you in a, in a foxhole. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you're learning. Alongside. It's my way of talking more fun than your way. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, good deal. You're enjoying it. I am. Fair enough. Um, don't talk to your mom like that because she'll wonder what sort of raggedy dogs you've been hanging around, hanging around with. Let's go to the long side. Here is Sam in Cross Hill. Hey, Sam. Hey, good morning again, fellas. Uh, enjoying the show this morning. Looking forward to your interview uh, uh, coming up here shortly. A um, couple of things. Um, I, gr- I grew up in Darlington in the 50s and the 60s, and the most important thing that we had to know graduating from high school was uh, who was the, uh, back in those days, the Grand National Racing Champion history winners and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, I just heard some news from the upstate up here that they've, they've sold the Greenville Pickens Speedway, which is sort of a historical track in NASCAR. I remember Dale Earnhardt would usually go up there after the Southern 500 um, uh, to uh, – attend an event that they would have up there but um also uh i saw brett bear last night as he wound his show up he talked about another historic track that uh was turned into a walking trail and uh i don't remember where that was but uh ken you talk about uh, truth now i've got to i gotta take you to account here a little bit i heard you say a while ago that you talked for 20 hours a week and i'm sure that is true but when I go to a race, I have a scanner, and I usually listen to MRN radio. And we, God bless the sponsors. I, I so appreciate them sponsoring you guys. But the most interesting part of that is listening to the uh, conversations between the guys while the uh, commercials are running because they'll switch that off, and you can hear the behind-the-scenes conversation. So when I look at your archive sometimes, I see that there's only about two, maybe two, two and a half hours of actual talking. But I know you're talking. Is there any way you could fill that in with the conversation that you guys have? Man, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. My, my mom might want to wash my <laughs> mouth out with soap if I were to um, divulge any of that. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I want to kind of continue that NASCAR talk in just a minute. A big NASCAR fan here. Back in a minute. You know, I want to go back real quick. I don't like leaving something as open-ended as we did last um, in the last segment. The support for student debt cancellation. I mean, this is kind of an interesting poll 
I read it in the New York Times yesterday. Uh, so you know it's got to be true if it's in the New York Times. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a bit biased, but it's probably found a, uh, founded in some uh, modicum of truth. Democrats, 88% support the forgiveness of student debt. Independents, 56%. Republicans, 37%. That was a big number to me. 37% of Republicans support, um, you know, the forgiveness of student debt. Now, a lot of them are like you, Reb. That, that they, they believe they were scammed into uh, acquiring this much student debt. So there's a rationale. There's kind of a... Right. What, I, what I, I just saying? can't square up the, the government got involved and unnaturally affected the price of education. Do we agree on that? No question. Distorted okay. in, a ma- in a major way. Okay, so do they have any responsibility there? You know, does that make this a more acceptable way to deal with that? Well, it, and it's not it just that. Argued. It's not just that the government distorted the market. The government also... Um, created a world of which college degrees were, um, I mean, the credentialed class, the credentialed economy. Um, a game warden has to have a four-year degree. This job requires a four- degree inflation, I think is what the uh, the vernacular is out of the mainstream. But, um, but, but I get that. I mean, I understand. I certainly understand Democrats because they've turned into socialists. So I get why they would want the government to come to the rescue and bail out those who took on debt um, irresponsibly or responsibly. For that matter, the independent, that's kind of interesting to me, 56%. But the Republican number did surprise me. I figured the Republican number somewhere in the low 20s. I mean, two of 10 Republicans say, yeah, forgive the debt. But it's nearly four in 10 Republicans, and that was kind of interesting to me. Now, when you add the question um, that it primarily benefits higher income individuals, the, the, the Democrat number plummets because they're into this class warfare. I mean, there's just a lot of things kicking in this poll, and I want to better um, understand, and we'll comment probably tomorrow more entailed about what the poll says. I want to make sure I'm respectful of our guest time. He's uh, been kind enough to join us. He has joined us a couple of other times as chairman of the SCGOP. He is still currently chairman of the SCGOP, but he is now co-chair of the National Republican Party. Drew McKissick. Drew, good morning. How are you, sir? Man, I'm doing well this morning. How are you? We are well. Congratulations on your um on your recent assignment, promotion, um, task at hand, job to do, whatever whatever you want to call it. But Drew, what motivated you to want to be involved, not just in in the SCGOP, but the party across all fifty states? Well, I mean that that really just goes way back. I mean, just from when I got out of college and got in politics to begin with. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people. You know, like you, I care a lot about different issues, things that I see that, uh, uh, you know, make me upset, you know, whether it's student loan craziness, as you were just talking about a minute ago, uh, to, you know, to the life issue, to, uh, you know, other social issues, fiscal issues, you name it. I mean, there's so many different things, obviously, that I think were wrong with the way government goes about things uh, philosophically, uh, but I'm not the kind of person that could ever be a single issue person or advocate, if you will, because there's so much stuff that distressed me that I'd go crazy. So I decided a long time ago to get involved in politics at the grassroots level and in the party uh, to try to help people you know, like myself who are conservatives who care but don't necessarily know what to do about it or how to go about it, uh, to train them, uh, to show them, one, why this process is relevant, why the party can be relevant in what they care about, and two, how to have an impact on it. Uh, and if I do that, you know, in my mind, effectively, I'm getting more people and helping more people like myself. and that then has an impact on all of those things that we care about uh, collectively as conservatives. 
Drew, I ran as a Republican, won as a Republican at the county and state level. Um, th- th- there was a, a modus operandi, so to speak, of my campaigns and the way I interpreted my responsibilities and how to win elections. I'm somewhat of a pundit now. Let me stop. I'm not somewhat of a pundit. I'm a full-blown damn pundit right now, giving opinions every morning about the way I see the world. But, but here's what I see, and I want to get your take on it, because you have a much larger responsibility than I do. I have a job. And I have a lot of fun doing this job, but but you've got to get in the battle. I mean, you've got to really try to figure out a way to cobble together, um, you know, kind of a uh, ruling majority and win elections. It seems to me, Drew, that the Republican Party historically has been, I don't want to say a globalist, interventionist, you know, imperialistic party, but th- th- we're in a transition. I mean, uh, you know, the Republican Party is suffering from, I call her this morning, called it jet lag. The voters are here. And the elected officials are there. And there is some right. some difference in where the Lindsey Graham and Mitt Romneys of the world are and where the majority of Republican voters are. Is that a fair mm-hmm. description? Is there, for lack of a better, a jet lag between where we historically have been and where it seems yeah. the sentiment of the majority of our voters are today? I think a, a better example, I think, uh, uh, is that a sort of a rubber band snapping back? So I mean, you know, we had where the Republican Party was and as it's grown, and you about the same age as I am, maybe you're a couple of years older, and you've seen that evolution of the Republican Party here in the South, in South Carolina particularly, in the PD particularly, and what we see today. But you know, as that process evolved over 30 to 40 years, and different you know conservatives came to think of themselves as Republicans, different elements of the conservative coalition began to join the Republican Party, whether fiscal, whether social, uh, whether those you know, from a from a national security, foreign policy policy perspective, et cetera. Around you know, say the 19, early 1990s, I think you began to see a lot of drift in Washington D.C. away from the base of the party, and it was slow, but it was real. Uh, and a lot of it, say, for instance, tied to issues like immigration, which I know you discussed extensively. Uh, and, you know, talk about globalism and trade and so forth. All these things are tied together. And what we saw in 15, when Donald Trump ran for president, uh, you saw, I think, the rubber band snap back. You know, it stretched really tight. And what happened was those folks in the DC, what I call the DC Republican Party, the DC bubble, not necessarily the folks in the state houses and county councils around the country, but the DC crowd had moved away from the base on those issues. And when Trump came out and began to talk about those issues in a way that people understood were relevant to their daily lives, that rubber band snapped back. And you saw him best 16 other respectable Republican candidates from all across the country. And people were wondering, why, why, why is he able to do that? Despite, you know, other things that would be a problem in killing the other campaign, because he was talking about things that were relevant to the crowd that you're talking about right now. And you've had more and more Republicans now for the last five to six years come to see that and address that, those who have run for congressional seats and Senate seats begin to talk more about those issues. So there's definitely a recognition of it, uh, not maybe as much yet as there should be within the D.C. beltway, if you will. Definitely a recognition of it around the country, you know, state parties around the country. I talk to other state party chairmen all the time, what they see locally and around their states and so forth, you know, the issues that people at the base of the party actually care about. And the more that we talk about those things in a way that's relevant to people's daily lives, the better we will do electorally as a party. Drew, when someone would ask me to intellectually rationalize my support of Trump in 16 and 20, I couldn't. I mean, I honestly could not. There was a degree of, of frustration and, and, and you know, just, just wanting a change 
seeing, as you said, the Washington Republican Party being out of touch with um with its voters. But but then I began to kind of think about trade, immigration, China. You just touched on on some of those issues. Right. There is a, a legitimate argument to be made about trade and where the Republicans were, immigration, where the Republicans mm-hmm. were, China, where the Republicans were. Here Here's the question I have for you, and I don't want you to say this candidate mm-hmm. or that candidate. Can anybody right. fly the flag that this, this new iteration of – of Republicanism on trade immigration in China, other than Donald Trump. Well, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna prejudge candidates. I mean, we've got a lot of good candidates or potential candidates out there. I, I would say, as a party right now, we've got what I would kind of call, you know, nationally an embarrassment of riches in terms of potential candidates, especially comparably uh, to Joe Biden, and not just as a candidate in the potential campaigns, but in terms of the issues and where they are respective to the American people. Uh, you know, now different candidates are going to enunciate that in a different way. Uh, you know, one of the things, the jokes that I told about the Donald Trump from back in you know, 15 and 16, which had what I thought was the broadest coalition of people for any candidate that I've ever seen in my political life in the 16 election. Uh, and it was one because of those issues that we just talked about. But it was also about, in many ways, the way that he talked about those issues, you know. Uh, one would talk about those issues potentially like a lawyer, one like a preacher, one like a politician, and Donald Trump would do it like the way my dad yells at the television set, you know, during the evening news. You know, it's like it was that, but a lot, some of it was stylistic, but a lot of it was the dedication that people saw to talking about those particular issues, and that remains to be seen, you know, with the rest of the candidates we have out there. But you know, I think if I was in Vegas today and I was setting, uh, you know, the over/under line on how many candidates we'll have, say by the time we get here to South Carolina in the primary one year from now. I'd say eight, I think, is probably probably the over-under number, quite frankly. Uh, we'll have a lot of folks who put themselves forward. Uh, and, you know, we get a special position here in South Carolina to get a good, long, and, and versus other states, more up-close look. You know, those candidates have more of an impact on whose campaign eventually takes off. Uh, and in a, in a big way, South Carolina helps kind of set the, uh, not just set the stage, but set the tone for, uh, the presidential nomination process, uh, particularly on the Republican side, and we have since 1980. Drew, there are millions of voters out there that don't know they're a conservative, but they are. Have we done mm-hmm. a good right. job in, in in connecting with those voters? I mean, the one thing Trump mm-hmm. did, mm-hmm. and he's done a lot of things I don't support, but there's no question about it, he's brought on a lot of issues that, that Republicans and, and pundits such as myself have had to explain or, or not try to explain and just let the facts um, speak as they do. But, but I do believe he's brought in a universe of supporters, like-minded voters, who aren't sure whether they are conservatives or not. How do we speak to that universe of voter? Well, yeah, and that's, that's part of our job, and I say as our job in this case, is political committees. So, you know, we've got a lot of groups out there in what I call the Republican or conservative ecosystem, policy groups, think tanks, et cetera. You know, but we, the party. The South Carolina Republican Party, the you know Florence County Republican Party, the Republican National Committee, all of those respectively are officially campaign committees, which has a very special role in American politics. It's not necessarily to set policy. I mean, we adopt platforms, but then we get to the business of actually electing candidates. So it is our job to help those candidates try to communicate and enunciate those those messages, those things that connect with those voters. And as you pointed out, there are a lot of folks out there, I think, that you know have, have begun to vote. I would use a straight ticket number as an example. Vote for our party who, you know, they're conservative independents or conservative Democrats, but now they're coming to think of themselves as Republicans. The better job that we do of talking to them along the lines of those issues, you know, particularly, 
the first time I mean, we we thought about South Carolina as a red state for years, and folks nationally have, of course. But the first time in history that we beat Democrats on straight ticket voting in South Carolina was 2016. We beat them by two and a half points on it. In 18, we beat them by eight points. In 20, we beat them by 17 points. This past November, we beat them by 27 points statewide on straight ticket voting. That tells you that a lot of those people, I think, that you're just describing, you know, that they just maybe they haven't thought it through, you know, in terms of where do I fit in the, the ideological spectrum, but they have conservative principles, and they're more and more connecting those things that they really care about and believe in to our party and to our candidates. And that's to the credit of, of a lot of our candidates, in my opinion, who've done a better job of getting that message out. We try to help them do that. But at the end of the day, if people don't think we're relevant, we're not going to grow. And that's what it comes down to. Drew, it's pretty obvious whether it's Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Larry Hogan, um, insert candidate A, B, C, or D. Um, we're in better shape in Florida than we've been in recent memory. We're in better shape in Ohio than recent memory. Um, but we got to compete in Pennsylvania. we got to compete in Wisconsin, Michigan, sure. Nevada, Arizona. Forget candidates for a second. What is the message that you think resonates? I mean, obviously, South Carolina's red, but we ain't going to decide the next president. I mean, it's going to be decided by independent-minded voters, and I would argue not even in Florida or Ohio right now, but rather Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada. What is the message? I mean, you co-chair the National Party. What, what do you think the message is that resonates most with that voters we need on our side? It goes right back to those issues. I mean, you again, you've hit the nail on the head. These are things that people are, have been and still are concerned about, have been concerned about for decades. They've thought people in both parties, quite frankly, especially on the national scene, have left them on a lot of those issues. Uh, you know, but again, you, know, you, you can't sit here and say that issues about like immigration or trade issues aren't relevant to people in Pennsylvania or in Michigan uh, or in Nevada, immigration, certainly Arizona, immigration, certainly. These issues are directly relevant to their daily lives. And the better of a job we do talking about those things and putting forward solutions to those issues, things they think are going to matter the better we're going to do, the better our candidate for president is going to do. Uh, if we don't and they don't think that we're relevant to it, then they'll probably stay home. Uh, they're not going to vote for Democrats most likely, but the point is getting them to understand this is, can matter to me. I need to go turn out and vote. If we do that, we can win. I mean, it's, it's, it, it ain't complicated. Uh, there are only three moving parts really to any campaign from school board to president, and that's the right message, good organization, and then raising the money to make getting the message and the organization possible. Uh, and if we do a good job of that, we can win. Drew, one of the loudest voices in conservative circles is conservative talk radio. No question about it. It began with Russ Limbaugh. Yep. I mean, I, I am kind of I'm yep. blessed to have an opportunity to speak to an audience of listeners, but I accept that my audience is probably a little more rigid, a little more committed to a conservative governance stand. Some of the more independent-minded or moderate mm -hmm. voices within our country, both Republican and Democrat. But many of my listeners right. – believe the biggest challenge facing Republicans today is the shenanigans. And I use that word with air quotes here, the shenanigans of what they believe happens involving ballot harvesting and unsolicited mail-in mm -hmm. ballots and post-COVID post -COVID voting. What are we doing? What have we done? How committed is the Republican Party to leveling the playing field to make sure we don't start in Nevada 200,000 votes behind, Arizona 150,000, uh, Pennsylvania, right. you know, maybe 250. That's, I mean, it, it, in other words, it doesn't matter who the candidate or how good they are. If that machine is not competing mm -hmm. on equal terms, it's going to be a slot. How do we get better at that, right. Drew? 
So that's one of the things actually that I ran on in terms of uh, my race for co-chair uh, was what we need to do. And I say we in this sense, what the Republican National Committee can do uh, and to help state parties and campaigns in states that are affected by laws and processes that have been changed by either bureaucrats or in many cases, Democrats that control those states uh, because of COVID, you know, as an excuse to change the rules in the middle of the game, effectively is what they did in the 20 cycle. Uh, what can we do to help folks in those states that have those kind of problems? Uh, is litigation uh, an option? In places where it is, we're engaged in a multitude of lawsuits all around the country right now. But in a lot of these places, it's legislative. Uh, you know, Democrats are setting the rules. And the bottom line is, uh, if ballot harvesting is legal, and it's going to be legal in that election cycle in this state, then we got to be better at it than Democrats are. Plain and simple. Uh, if all mail-in balloting is going to go on in this particular state, we don't like it. We think that's uh, that's a bad way to have an election. We think it's open more open to fraud. Uh, but if that's going to be the law of the land in that election, we've got to be able to compete and do it better than Democrats because the bottom line is losers don't make policy. So what we've done is put together a uh, post-election committee that's engaged in looking at states that have those processes, what went right, what we were able to do well, places where we didn't do it as well, what can those folks learn from one another, uh, what about, the, again, other states where we need legislative changes or potentially lawsuits, et cetera, putting all of this together, coming out probably within about, I'd say, two months uh, in a report, which is then going to be made available to all of our state parties around the country and then result in a training program, which will then inform the grassroots on the ground program for the next election cycle. Uh, so the main thing to begin with is to look at what went right and what went wrong. It's one thing to lose. It's another thing not to learn something from it. That's worse, in my opinion. Well said. Uh, and that's what we've got to do right now. Drew, last question. Appreciate your time. We're with Drew McKissick. He is the um, chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party, co-chair of the National Party. Um, I've got several people in my universe that are very competent, very efficient, very diligent. They've given up on the duopoly. I mean, they, they just say, look, man, both parties are so bought and sold. Both parties are so corrupt at the federal level. It, it honestly doesn't matter to me who runs the country. I have a set of values. I have a set of views. But at the end of the day, once they get to Washington, they lose touch with reality. They do what those special interests say do. They do what corporate America says do. I would rather not vote for either of them. What do you say to that person, uh, Drew, that you know philosophically aligns with our party but is so yeah. frustrated by the antics of Washington, they've just thrown their hands up and said basically mm -hmm. to hell with it all. Well, uh, there are a few guarantees in life. You know, as they say, death and taxes, you know, are, are guaranteed. You know, I would say one of the things guaranteed is if you don't participate in politics in a self-governing society, then you're guaranteed not to like the result. You might not and probably won't get everything you want if you get involved, and it's not going to be perfect. And I'll say that this country didn't get screwed up overnight, and it ain't going to get fixed overnight. But the bottom line is it's kind of like dishes. You know, if you don't get in there and clean up the dishes, and after a while they're going to stack up, and then nobody's going to want to go and clean it up. And that might be about where we are right now. But that means we have to have people who get in there and get their hands dirty and help get things cleaned up. That means good people run for office. That means more people to help good people run for office. And here's the thing. If you fix something, that doesn't mean you can quit. It ain't over. Politics doesn't stop. It's going to go on until the Lord comes back. You know, So uh, if we don't have people who are committed to stay involved when we win and stay involved when we lose, then we're all screwed. That's the bottom line. Well explained. Politics is not a spectator sport. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Have a good one. Absolutely. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National Party, giving his take on um, kind of where we are, where he thinks we're headed. Um, kind of interesting, touched on ballot harvesting. Um, well aware of 
some of the shenanigans that I used that I'm word. I'm glad you asked that. Because, because I can't think of a better. I mean, I think it's the most important word out there. I mean, I, it yeah. doesn't matter if Trump, DeSantis, Haley. Uh, I mean, whomever runs with an R beside their name can't start in Pennsylvania 300,000 votes behind. They can't start in Georgia a quarter of a million votes behind. They can't start in Michigan 200,000 votes behind. I, I go back to 2020. I coined the phrase. I don't think I plagiarized this. Uh, I think I'm the one that, that kind of initialized. I mean, they stole it fair and square. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Who's the mer- What single politician is the most word salady? I mean, when I think of um, politicians who say a lot but don't say much of anything, because Drew actually admitted, and that's kind of interesting he would, that for a long, long time, the, the Republican Party of Washington establishment was able to convince the average voter, hey, we got your back. And at some point in time, the average voter said, no, you don't. <laughs> in fact, you never have, or it's been a long time since you've, since you've had in that. In fact, I'm not sure you even like me. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think Thick Pitt admitted that he didn't care much for the Trump supporter to begin with. I think he's he warmed up to some of that, uh, or maybe not. I don't know. But um, it's just kind of an interesting take that Drew has. And, um, and I thought a, uh, a chairman of the state party who is now co-chair of the national party would be valuable to our listeners to understand what the party's plan is moving forward. The most important thing the GOP can do today is to secure elections. I'm so glad you asked that because when you were thinking I'm one of those, I mean, without that, and you, if you can't trust the system and the votes are counted correctly and fairly, then what can you trust? Well, I mean, I'm, nothing I, else matters in politics. I'm not going to tease here, but I've actually got some some privileged information, and it's got some tabs. i got to get a, a password and all these other good things. But there, there's a site that I've been privileged to, uh, to go to. Went last night for a good bit, and it's so interesting in some of the data points. And it's talking about, you know, um, dead people still on the rolls, um, people who have moved still on the rolls. People who voted twice in the election, the, the, the vote was challenged. And, I mean, it's got kind of an accounting. It's, it's an audit is what it is. I mean, it's a postmortem of the election of 2020, uh, really 2016, 18, 20, and 22. And it talks about the percentage of voters that you have questions about and the percentage of voters you have no question at all. Uh, but this person lives here. This person is alive. And then you have another category. Does this person live here? Is this person alive? And then there's another category. We know this person doesn't live here, and we know they aren't alive. And, and, and it's interesting how many more questions there are in blue states. I mean, the red states, it seems to me, and, I, and I'll actually give you the data. Uh, we'll take a break here in a couple of minutes, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll go to the website. I'll log in, and I'll find some of the uh, random states. I mean, we could go to, let's say, Georgia would be an interesting state that Republicans have a lot of questions about. We'll go to, well, let's do South Carolina first. We'll do South Carolina because we kind of know the home terrain, so to speak. Then we'll go to Georgia. Then we'll go to, give me another, Pennsylvania would be an interesting state. Then we'll go to Michigan. I mean, these are swing states that Republicans feel they're not getting a fair shake in. I mean, Red, when you look at the polling and you see the macros and you talk about the approval rating of the president, um, you talk about the right track, wrong track number, I mean, it, it looked like the Republicans should have won 40 seats, and they didn't. They didn't win anywhere near 40 seats. Is that the Republicans' fault, or is there some underlying fundamental that we're not accounting for? Remember what Kahaley said 
Uh, Robert said it's hard to poll now, but it's unbelievably difficult to poll since COVID uh, became a part of our election order. Um, you got a likely voter and an unlikely voter and someone who never votes. Well, someone who never votes has been turned into a likely voter, and the unlikely voter is turned into a, a likely voter. It's unsolicited mail-in ballots. It's ballot harvesting. It's, um, it's stealing the election fair and square. And when, when people take exception with what Fox News has been allowed to, um, uh, to regurgitate on its, on its news network that the election was stolen, I've never blamed the Dominion voting systems. I've never blamed uh, the machines. I don't think Dominion is going to win the suit because I don't think Dominion can show where they've lost a contract. I mean, yeah, they've been disparaged. Yeah, their name's been questioned. Join the club. But have you been financially disadvantaged? Has a state canceled an order on Dominion voting systems because of what Tucker Carlson said or what Jesse Waters said or what Laura Ingram said? I don't know the answer to that question. I know I've read three or four or five articles about it, and they don't mention that Dominion has lost any money. It's all about defamation and slander. Um, Hey, man, you're talking bad about us. We want $1.6 billion because last we heard in your financial disclosure for Wall Street, you got about $6 billion in cash laying around. You know, so don't tell us you can't pay us because you're a publicly traded company and your financial statements say you got a lot of that do-re-mi um, laying around. You funded everything that has to be funded. You've dispersed to the um, shareholders, the preferred dividends and stocks and all that. You've, um, you've, you've met all of your obligations and there's still about $6 billion laying around, and we think we want $1.6 billion. Well, how do you arrive at that number? I mean, if you've got canceled contracts, I get it. I mean, we had a contract with the state of Minnesota, and because of Fox News and what they said, we've lost that contract, and that was a million-dollar contract, and this was a $150 million contract. That was a $200 million. What is your financial disadvantage? And I think Dominion is going to have a hard time convincing a jury or a judge that they have lost that much money in, you know, what they would have received had they been allowed to conduct elections. The voting machines were allowed to be used in conducting elections in several and said states. But but I still believe the election was stolen. I mean, I'm not a, I guess I am a conspiracy theorist to some degree. I still believe uh, the election was stolen. I have no information that leads me to believe Dominion voting machines had anything to do with it, but I just don't buy. I'm sorry, Rev. Um, call me whatever you choose to call me. I don't buy that in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, we went from 62.3% voter participation rate to 85, 86, 87, 88%. I just don't buy that. It is a statistical anomaly. Can I prove it? No, I can't prove it. But isn't that kind of what we're doing with Alec Murdoch? I mean, we're trying to prove he murdered his wife and kid without having a weapon without having a witness, without having an admission. I mean, we're basing all of this on circumstantial evidence, compelling circumstantial evidence. And I used the analogy this morning that many have used. When I wake up, when I go to bed at night and it's not raining and it hasn't rained, and I wake up the next morning and my driveway, car, and road are wet, I make the assumption that it rained. That, that is beyond a reasonable doubt as far as I'm concerned. So when I say something happened in 2020, I can't explain. Somebody offer me an explanation. I mean, explain to me how 100% of people in nursing homes voted. 
Explain to me how 90-year-olds with Alzheimer's voted repetitively in some of these um, very competitive and swing states. And, and I think the Republicans, forget Trump for a second. I mean, let's say DeSantis. Let's say Haley. Let's say whomever gets in the race. I mean, Drew said probably upwards of eight. I mean, Drew's more of an insider than I am. He knows more about that world than I do. So let's say seven or eight um, decide to run and offer themselves as a candidate for president in the Republican Party. Don't we owe those candidates a fair shake in Pennsylvania? I mean, if we're not going to change the laws relating to ballot harvesting or unsolicited mail-in ballots, don't we need to be better at it than they are? I mean, isn't that the name of the game? I mean, once again, in South Carolina, Republicans are in charge. Republicans don't trust ballot harvesting. Republicans don't really trust unsolicited mail-in ballots. So the Republicans have built a system that they believe is more virtuous, more integrity, um, or has more integrity in in that system. But I don't care who it is. I mean, Haley, DeSantis, Hogan, uh, Romney, whomever. I mean, since COVID, the Democrats have done a much better job capitalizing on what we allow to be counted as a legitimate vote. The Republicans have pouted and whined and complained, myself included. It's time to build a machine, accept the realities of voter harvesting and outvoted vote harvest the Democrats, accept unsolicited mail-in ballots as a practical reality and newfound tradition of American politics. Knock on doors, go to nursing homes, mail out ballots to likely Republican vote, mail the ballot and go see those people. And when you see those people, tell them what you have to tell them to get them to sign up and vote Republican. I just think that's where we are today. And if we don't address that, it doesn't matter who we run, they're not going to win in some of these states governed by Democrats. The, 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 the voting is, is largely monitored and policed by Democrats. Do you feel like they're doing enough along those lines? I don't know. I mean, that's not my you world. You don't hear a lot about it. I, I well, don't. I mean, and, and that may be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it may be good that we're not hearing. I think Drew talked about multiple lawsuits in multiple places. Yep. Um, we ain't going back to pre-COVID. I'm sorry. I mean, these Democrats have figured out a way to win at the ballot box, and they're not going to give up that advantage. If I were a Democrat, I wouldn't give up that advantage. So the Republicans have to play catch-up. How quickly are we playing catch-up? I don't know. Take a break. Back in a minute. Elections are, are, I mean, they get incredibly complicated, but at the end of the day, the most important election integrity document is the voter roll. I mean, it tells election officials who is eligible to vote and who is not. Well, it really doesn't say who is not, just who is eligible to vote. Um, it, it controls um, where the ballots are sent, who the ballots are sent to. Um, we know that inaccurate voting rolls lead to um, disputes in elections, chaos in election. There, there's a team at the Public Interest Legal Foundation that has spent about five years going down every state's list. And, and they're, well, they're, well, they're basically, once again, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, and they, they've compiled the voting rolls from states all over America. That they, they build a database that allows them to know who's voting twice, who's voting um, beyond the grave, shall I say. Um, and they've used this data to sue states for failing to effectively um, manage, uh, I, I guess, um, list maintenance is what it's called in the world of, um, if Drew McKissick were talking about it, he'd say list maintenance. And that means, re- uh, you know, removing deceased registrants, um, duplicate voter 
um, registrations, uh, voters who have moved to another state. They're voting in that state and this state as well. In other words, if Dave Baker moves to Nebraska and he registers in Nebraska and they don't take him off the roll in South Carolina, he's a dual registrar. He's registered to vote in Nebraska and he's registered to vote in, uh, in South Carolina. And we think that happens a lot in states like Pennsylvania. So Dave Baker gets a ballot in South Carolina, but he doesn't live in South Carolina anymore. He's moved his registration and they've got him registered in Nebraska. But um, some of these states are more diligent than others. Now, now, I don't want to be accusatory. I have no idea. They may be dumb, they may be slack and incompetent, or they may be um, nefarious. I'll let you decide, but let's do this. Let's go real quick. Got about three or four minutes here. Uh, let's go to South Carolina. So South Carolina has, I mean, when I talk about duplicate vote credits, this is in 2022 election. Three duplicate vote credits um, in 2024. No, excuse me, 2020 and 2022. Um, eight. So you got three and eight registrants credit for voting from non-residential addresses, five out of 28. So just hold on to those numbers, three, eight, five, 28. Let's go to Pennsylvania just to see what the numbers are. Once again, hold on to those numbers, three, eight, five, 28. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's a bigger state, so expect the numbers to be a little bit more. Um, where there was a three in Pennsylvania, there's a 55,910. Where there's an eight, uh, there's a 4,458. Where there was a 528, there's a 3,984. And I'm talking about duplicates. I'm talking about duplicated registrants. And I'm talking about voting from non-residential addresses. Um, this professes to be bipartisan research. Um, with a name like the Public Interest Foundation, how could you accuse them of being partisan by any stretch? of the imaginations. The truth is, and I could go through all 50 states. I did last night. The red states, the numbers are significantly lower than the blue states. Now, you may believe in coincidence. You may believe in happenstance. You may believe that Pennsylvania, for whatever reason, damn it, we just forgot to take those dead people off the roll. We forgot to take those people who have moved to other locations, these non-residential addresses. Um, you know what that is? That's a business. I mean, that's mailing a ballot to a business or an apartment complex, the mailroom in an apartment complex. We know this to be true. We know that in a mailroom at an apartment complex in Atlanta, Georgia, not Atlanta, Fulton County, I'm not going to say it's in Atlanta proper, but there was about 6,000 votes delivered to a mailroom in Fulton County, Georgia. We know that to be true. Now, now once again, the red states more, may be more competent. They may be more diligent or... There could be something other than that is the motivation. Let's go to Illinois. Let's see what Illinois. I mean, Illinois is kind of the poster child for corrupt elections, right? Illinois. <laughs> uh, uh oh. P I L F, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, has been forced to file a lawsuit oh. against the state of Illinois. They even get the information. They denied the foundation's request to inspect Illinois' statewide voter registration records. Um, and Democrats will say, well, you know how that is. That damn Fox News. I mean, they're telling people the election was stolen. But what about the state of Illinois refusing uh, uh, an FOI request of the voter rolls? Um, guess where else is refused? The District of Columbia has refused. Um, they've had to sue the Public Legal Found Public Interest Foundation, the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Now, what possible motive would they have to not release that information? They just don't want to spend a lot of taxpayer dollars on lawyers. 
Oh, but they're field school conservatives. You know that. <laughs> Don't you dare accuse yeah. the state of Illinois yeah. or, or the District of Columbia okay. or, or the state of New York or the state of Pennsylvania. Don't you dare accuse those folks of any nefarious behavior. They're trying to look after taxpayer dollars, and they don't want to spend a lot of attorneys or spend a lot of money on attorneys defending okay. um, their rights. Thanks hey, for clearing that nah, up. Well, I mean, that's clarity. <laughs> hey, and this isn't the Public Interest Foundation. This isn't the Public Legal Foundation. This is the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Mm. They've got every base covered when it comes to integrity, virtue, and nonpartisan. Take a break. Back in a few. Rev, we got a studio full of guests, but I got a little cleanup on aisle three before we move forward. Uh, we're talking about Illinois. And once again, the Public Interest Legal Foundation can be nothing but full of integrity, full of virtue, and bipartisan, right? Uh, I mean, it can't be named sure. that without being totally and completely virtuous. Mm-hmm. When they sue the Illinois Board of Elections, they won the suit. So the data we're talking about or inquiring about will be made available at some point in time, after this Public Interest Legal Foundation reviews the data and the court ruled that the State Board of Elections had to pay the foundation's attorney cost and the, and the fees associated. So um, we misled by saying we didn't have any data from Illinois. We don't today, but we will as a result of the, um, of the uh, lawsuit. But you, you, isn't Chicago and Illinois? It is nothing to see here. Not, nothing at all to worry <laughs> right. about in elections. Um, in Ch- when I was a little boy and knew nothing about politics, it was always Chicago. Yep. I mean, as a kid, I always remember they're having some issues in Chicago. I'm like, I'm seven. I don't know anything about issues in Chicago. It is the um, it is it is not only the windy city. It is known as um, well, I mean, the Kennedy they the have Kennedy a Nixon election. Um, there there are many Kennedy supporters. Excuse me, Nixon supporters who believe. Um, Joe Kennedy spent half their fortune in Chicago to get um, Jack Kennedy elected president of the United States. Some of those urban legends and myths and tall tales um, build upon themselves as time as time progresses. I said I got a studio full of people here. I want to make sure I recognize everybody. Tamara Curvin is the director of the Florence Wine and Food Festival. Um, Sam Tinsley is here with us in what capacity, Sam? Good morning, I'm the, sir. Uh, beverage director. Okay, uh, but he scored a point with me because he he's uh, friends with the son of the Baptist preacher that baptized me fifty three ish four ish years ago. And then we've got the Lee brothers, Ted Lee and Matt Lee, both were with us last year. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great and to be Tamara here. doesn't have a microphone. She's um she's allowed the men uh, to speak. <laughs> so 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 let's start with an explanation to our listeners exactly what is the Florence Wine and food festival the florence wine and food festival is three days of downtown just uh food and beverage love um it's kicks off thursday night with a great sort of smoky meaty grill-a-thon at the waters building um and uh, sam over here is you know curating all of the beverages that will flow through this and uh the whole festival is um is uh you know, sponsored by Mickey Finn. So you got to understand, like, there's going to be some incredible wines, incredible beers, and yes, there will be bourbon. Um, so it's, it's seven events across, okay. across three days, all of which is a charity. All the proceeds go to the charity Help for Kids Florence, which is a great cause serving food insecure families in Florence. So that's a great thing. But the seven parties are awesome. As Matt said, we start off with Meet and Meander on Thursday night. That's our kickoff party. Um, 
we also have this year we have a new event the grand tasting which is on, on saturday during the day um and it's uh it's going to be like a whole blocks worth of awesome tasting stations we'll have like 20 food tasting stations sam here's curated 10 beverage stations uh we'll have a performance stage sponsored by the south carolina department of agriculture with mixology competitions food competitions some music bluestone ramblers are playing it's going to be a lot of fun kind of like a carnival atmosphere but i I gotta ask this okay i'm from the country yeah i'll 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 preface any of my comments from i am from the country you guys have become somewhat noted in in this world of, of, of festivals and wine and food and i'm talking about the lee brothers how did you get here? I mean, it was boiled uh, peanuts okay. that boiled started. Pe- walk, walk me through that. And then, so uh, yeah, after growing up in Charleston, we find ourselves um, in our early 20s in New York City and struggling to make ends meet. And it infuriated us that we could not get boiled peanuts in New York City. Like, here's a place where you can get the most esoteric food, you know, whatever it is, you can get it from around the world. And But you could not get boiled peanuts, just, you know. 11 hours up I-95. So we found the raw peanuts. We boiled them in our tenement apartment on Ludlow Street. And we walked them to the New York Times food writer's house, dropped them off with the doorman. And uh, September 1st, 1994, she wrote, you know, boiled peanuts now available by mail order and published our our tenement apartment telephone number, which rang off the hook. And and here we are. Here we are. Long story short, we had to move back to Charleston set up a mail order business shipping boiled peanuts to people who didn't have them in Los Angeles, wherever you were. Um, and that's how we, but we I got think what most people but, know us from is the cookbooks. Cause we published three really serious, like deep dive Southern cookbooks. Explain, like cooks, explain so. serious deep dive. I mean, to me, it would be trying to understand the situation in Ukraine I mean, and, and your world so, deep dive would mean what? So for us, it's sort of, um, our first book was all about parsing the regionalisms in Southern food because someone from outside the South is like, oh, it's all the same. It's fried chicken. It's barbecue. But we know. It's not? It's not. Okay. It's different from Charleston to Georgetown. Crab crabs. Right? Um, creasy um, greens. Like, I'd never had a shrimp burger. Artichoke relish. I mean, it's a, a huge, diverse world of Southern food um, that we're just beginning to understand. And if you drive, you know, uh, 90 minutes in any direction, you're going to be in a different food region. But in that's part of why we love this festival is because we're celebrating the food culture of the PD, right? I mean, Charleston's a world away. So Forget what is Charleston. the food culture? I mean, Charleston has a food scene. Greenville, I guess, has a food scene. You, 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 are you arguing that the PD has a food scene and, and we may not even be aware of it? Explain yes. that if you don't mind. Sure. So when you grew up in a place, you just don't realize that, you know, boiled peanuts are not normal everywhere else. Um but it extends to the different kinds of restaurants and the beverage traditions. Um, you know, it, we had no idea that, um, uh, what is that orange liqueur? Um, uh, Grand, Grand Marnier, Marnier had this like moment in Charleston, South Carolina, where for 10 years it outsold any place on the globe. Um, and it was a college kids phenomenon. And they just were like pounding the stuff, grandma shots, they called them. And, uh, and, and, you know, the people in France took notice. But, you know, cultural food and beverage traditions develop, and you just don't know where they come from. That's very, very interesting. Sam, I want to go to you for a second. Yeah. You've been referred to as a curator twice um, of, of alcohol, ber- alcoholic beverages. I would be more of the consumer category. Yeah. But, um, but, but how do you end up as a curator of alcohol? Well, uh, 
I got a job at Apple Annie's when I was at Francis Marion here. Formerly and, known as Wholesale. Yeah, formerly hey. known, a little before my time, but uh, I've, I still work there on Friday nights. i um, been there for 21 years, and that kind of sprung my interest into alcohol. It's not just Bush Light and White Zinfandel. You know, it's, uh, it's all these beers from all over the world and how they're made differently. And then the craft beer boom hit, and that's just sent it to the stratosphere. And now we have local breweries popping up everywhere, and people are paying attention more to what they're consuming far as alcoholic beverages so from there i got into the job in the in the alcohol distribution world so i'm working in you know, larger companies and you know, learning how things are done then the company i work for now advantage distributing hired me and we're focused more on quality from there i learned a lot about wine and learned to love it and it's a passion of mine i love that it's my job and uh, i feel like this uh, this festival is a good way to showcase what the people of the pd want what they're drinking we have a pretty good taste around here, as a lot of people just think little old Florence. But this is uh, this community likes to drink pretty high-end stuff, pretty esoteric stuff. And we're going to highlight this all weekend with whether it be wine, craft beer, and we got some distilleries this year for you. we got some bourbon well, I mean, for you to come out And that's out where here. I was headed. I mean, to me, I've read a little bit about bourbon. I mean, there's obviously a, a craftsmanship associated. Absolutely. I mean, it's a little different than vodka. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. you age it, you, you know, you smell it, you taste it, you do all these other um, why is it important that we connect the, um, the food side with the beverage side? In other words, for me, once again, um, I'm the unsophisticated of the bunch. It's, it's a beer and a hamburger and that's good yeah, enough for me. Wrong with that. But, but, but once again, at times I am curious and interested about this food and that flavor. And I got buddies of mine who say, stop being stupid. You're not stupid. Enjoy this beverage with this food. And it is dynamic. I mean, there, there is a sensation that you detect no, no matter how countrified you may be. I mean, is that something that you've always been curious about, that the connection of food and beverage? Absolutely. You know, I've traveled the world to a lot of different countries, and wherever I am, their food just naturally goes with their wine based off, you know, the terroir the dirt you know the way the animals are raised it's just they all go together and uh and that works here i mean you know, get a glass of bourbon and sit down with some barbecue and it'll you'll be in heaven you know that's it's just happens with everything uh beer pairs well with food you know drink a good hoppy beer with some really spicy food and you'll find yourself really liking it and um we want to show people that come out this year and it's not just wine we've got the beer we've got the bourbon we've got Vodka, rum, gin. We got all kinds of stuff going on out there. So there's something for everybody. Rev knows this story. So every Saturday evening, not every Saturday evening, I go to Paulie's a good bit, got a fire pit, and um, and I'll start sending him screenshots <laughs> of a Bob Dylan song or a Towns Van Zant song, and he'll say, how much bourbon have you been into yeah. uh, before we get here today? <laughs> but but I, I mean, I, you, you guys talk as one. I mean, I, you're brothers because you interrupt one another. Nobody gets mad <laughs> at anybody else. But, um, but, but once again, when you – Ah, sense an idea about food. Do you think of the beverage? Uh, oh, yeah. Is, oh, explain I mean, that. I mean, because that's, that's kind of weird to me. Well, think about oysters. I mean, go to Tubbs, that outdoor porch there, right? What do you want to drink with that? Is it a beer? Is it a white wine? For me, it's a white wine, right? But I, there are times I might be in the mood for So why is it a white wine? I mean, so what, what about that oyster that you me, go, wow, that white wine would be good with this? Fried oysters? beer okay raw oysters white wine okay i don't know it's just something about the the, the There's flavors refreshing that, aspect to it which might be acidity like lemon juice kind of um cleansing acidity that you want with the fried food um uh or you know the the oysters are salty that that aspect i mean 
Sam can speak to this a lot better than you know, we you can. Think about but. a lot of the the French white wines that we drink. I mean, Mickey Finn sells one, uh, they ton it, a wine called Pickpool, and it's grown in old oyster beds. The soil is oyster beds, so it kind of when you drink it, it begs for shellfish. It's uh, it's pretty fantastic how it's done, and it you know it works. I and mean, you put that blindfold yourself, drink it, eat the oyster, and you're like, wow, like this actually this isn't just something I read about. Fundamentally, it's about what you like. Sure, right, sure. I mean, there's there's no arguing no with that, that right? right? And, and 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 people like different things, right? I mean, they, and, you know, and the cool thing about our grand tasting is, well, you know, we'll have twenty food stations. Sam's he's gonna have a beer garden. He's gonna have you know the distillers in one corner, wine. We'll have also non-alcoholic stuff. I mean, we'll there's gonna be something. Okay, for but, but you're doing something, and, and I don't want to miss misspeak here, but it sounds to me like you're doing something that is normally done in private, but you're inviting the public. Is, is that a, a fairly accurate? I mean, the majority of these sorts of things happen uh, in places that a, a lot of people just don't associate with. This is a public event, yeah. and you want as many people listening to your voice to come and participate. Is that fair? Uh, yes, but but it's so much more than that. From the people side of this, this is going to be populated with the the um, local businesses, restaurants, right. chefs. I mean, the, um, who you know and love and are already in your community. You know, Tasting stations from Apple Annie's. We've got Doug the Food Guy, Seminar Brewing, Altman Farm and Mill. I mean, all local local businesses, you know, Harry and Harry's too. In a kind know. of carnival atmosphere. I mean, that's a really a lot of fun. All under carnival. one tent, $75 oh. all in, like just no, no ticketing, no lines, just like eat and drink, yeah. you know, so for three a lot hours. Of of so, Sam, slide the phone over here to Tamara if you don't mind. She said she didn't want to speak, but I, she's yeah, the director. She, we got to get her on the record yeah. here. So, so, so invite people to this event. I want you to, but I'm not sure I could properly do it. It's when, it's where, how can people become a, uh, a part of it? So the grand tasting is that Saturday um, afternoon. VIP access starts at 11. So from 11 to 12, if you have a VIP ticket. How do you get one of those? Um, you go to FlorenceWineAndFood.com. Okay. All the tickets are available, FlorenceWineAndFood.com. So at 11 a.m., from 11 to 12, if you're a VIP ticket holder, you can go in and enjoy the general admission area with no lines. Within that, And that's only going to be 150 people. So it's all yours for a solid hour. At 12, the VIP opens, general admission opens, and then the party starts. Okay. And that is this coming Saturday, and it's no, where again? No, it's April 1st. No, 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 April 1st. 1st. I'm sorry, yeah. April 1st. Yeah. So, okay. so the date so you got is a month. Sat- Saturday, April 1st from 11 until 3, and it's held at the county um, parking lot right downtown where the new parking garage is. But the, but the, the VIP is only 150 people, mm-hmm. so you better get a ticket now right. to make sure you're one of the, the VIPs. Once again, you go to the website. What is the website's name FlorenceWineAndFood.com. Sam, let, let's go back to you a second. We're, we're moving microphones around. T- tell me a beverage that'll blow my doors off that, that I'm not expecting. All right, so you're going to go. You're a bourbon, <coughs> bourbon guy, right? Mm-hmm. So we have Bardstown Bourbon Company. They're going to be our featured bourbon act all weekend. They are flying their VP of branding in to do educational seminars. These guys are kind of new to the scene, but for years they've been making the mash for a lot of high-end bourbons. I don't want to mention any names out here, but they uh, six years ago they put their own bourbon in barrels. And now, since then, they've been blending different things they've acquired and made a big name for themselves. And now they have their own stuff ready, and it will blow your doors off. I mean, right. this stuff is delicious. Same question with the food, Lee Brothers. And I speak to you as one because you interrupt one another so bad. Um, <laughs> so, so have at it. So uh, Local Motive Brewing is doing a special keg just for the festival uh, made out of um, – uh, and it's just one keg. So it's like – 
400 pounds of rye that I grew on John's Island, South Carolina, blended with 400 pounds of corn uh, from Tamara Curvin's husband. He, he grew in Darlington County, um, and we've never tasted it before. I can't say it's going to blow your doors off, but it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. And everybody has creative, I mean, just just have at it. I mean, there, there are no guardrails. There are no parameters. This no. is not a menu constructed by, well, by, by some engineer in food. Choose no. your own adventure. There, there, there yeah. you go. What we said to the chefs who are all showing up for this is like, you do you, right? And so we don't know what we're getting. You know, last year we had amazing, one of the finest bites was a pork belly from Holy Smoking. We don't know what Holy Smoking is bringing this year, and that's part of the exciting part about it. That's very interesting. Um, one very, thing, very, yes, sir, please. I do know that um, Buddy's new place in town is bringing sliders to the Grand Tasting. I'm excited for that. Oh, okay, sure. good deal. And it's promoting and advocating for local business. I mean, th- th- there's another element Absolutely. we're not talking much about, but this is not just great food, great booze. This is our, our local few food community, community on full display. Absolutely. Coming together. Okay. Putting our best foot forward that's an, as a okay. community. Good an, deal. Another thing we say to the chefs is, you know, you do you, but also if you want have something new you want to announce, something, you know, put your best foot forward. Good deal. Thank you all for coming. Thank Thanks you. For Good luck. Appreciate April you first. Back. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, and yes, ma'am, to Tamara. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. I want to tell a story real quick, and okay. then we'll go to the phone. So I do send Rev these pictures from the beach on normally a Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously never during during the week. Rev and I have this kind of, um, uh, it, it's, it's mainly driven by me. It's hardly ever driven. So it's not us. It's me. Um, I will force what I believe on you. If you give me a chance, Rev loves music and I, I know he I loves can music, confirm, by the way, but Rev needs to be converted. He needs to see the light. Mm-hmm. He still believes the safety dance is the greatest song ever written. <laughs> I never said the greatest. He believes 99 Luff Balloons is the second greatest I, song I do like that. ever written. He thinks Dylan's Blow, uh, Blowing in the Wind is a moronic ballad. Now, now he does believe that Born to Run is one of the great rock and roll anthems. True. Uh, he thinks U2 is one of the great rock and roll bands. Yep. So so there's some there's some common ground we share, but, but I think Rev would agree that his appreciation of music and my appreciation of music are not in the same zip code. I mean, they're, right. they're, they're entirely different of one another. So when I partake and have a few bourbons at the fire at the beach, I got me a big fire pit. I got from Schofield's. Got it at the at the beach, and um, and I, I cook on it. Yeah, you saw. I've, I've seen pictures of uh, you know, but 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 I'll screenshot, especially when I get serious, and I'm talking about serious to the point of Towns Van Zant, Blaze Foley, John Prine. Um, you know, I'm talking Serious. about, well, I mean, when we go down the rabbit hole of, um, singer songwriter, yeah. yep. I've told Rev, I got a buddy of mine who said, I mean, I sent him some towns, Van Zant and Blaze Foley. He's a little bit like I am. He's more of a Dylan Springsteen prime kind of guy. So I, I, I see the gentleman after I sent him the towns, Van Zant and Blaze Foley documentary. And when I walk in his office, he goes, that's the bottom of the rabbit hole there. I said, <laughs> I said what do you mean? He says, well, I mean, that rabbit hole with singer songwriters is pretty deep. I mean, it's pretty complicated, but I don't know if there's any depth beyond that. Um, so when when I am at the beach, I'll send Rev a screenshot of of a Dylan song or yep. a Towns Van Zandt mm-hmm. or a Blaze Foley, and Rev will. I mean, I, I don't know what the reaction he has, but he'll send back something like, "Okay, um, okay." Um, <laughs> kind I don't, of it's I, not a surprise. I don't smell the bourbon, but I detect the bourbon. Um, yep. 
And sometimes and, I'll even get a picture of the yeah, bourbon. And one of the um, and this is kind of interesting. Um, talking about Mickey Fans a second ago. Um, I got a buddy at Mickey Fans, and he and I converse a lot about Gamecock athletics and Gamecock football in general. But um, but I've mentioned Jefferson's Ocean over the airways. Now, once again, I don't know a good bourbon if slapped me in the face. But but I like the story of Jefferson's Ocean and the he's story. Your guy. Is, I mean, he's my your guy. guy. I'm a Jeffersonian. Uh, I'm a liberty-loving, um, libertarian-leaning Jeffersonian. Thomas Jefferson, to me, is the greatest political theorist in the history of mankind. I think Jefferson's fingerprints are more prominent on America than any other person in our history. Um, I will agree. Talking about plagiarism a second ago, you could easily argue that some of Jefferson's early pronouncements were plagiarized from John Locke. Uh, how do you accuse Thomas Jefferson of plagiarizing? I mean, that's the guy that shredded the Bible. <laughs> you know, the arrogance of Thomas Jefferson is like, well, I mean, it's pretty unscientific. Ah, it's a God thing. I get that, but I mean, I'm Jefferson, you know. So um, so only Thomas Jefferson ever considered himself the mortal rival to God Almighty. Um, but but I do like the, 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 the notion that Jefferson was interested in bourbon, and he believed that if you— if you um if you barreled the bourbon and put it in the bottom of a ship, it would slosh around in that barrel. Therefore, the the content would be more oak influenced, and some of the salt would eventually penetrate the oak, and and it would have. I mean, so so it's kind of a weird distillery notion, but but once again, it's Jefferson, and it's his theory of what bourbon would or would not have been. Um, and, and I, when I cook on the fire, I tell my buddies I'm a cowboy. And I got one buddy who sends back, cowboys don't mix dot ginger ale with their bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> you're, a, you're a dainty cowboy. You're, you're a make-believe cowboy if you mix dot ginger ale uh, with your bourbon. But, um, but many of you, and I say this, many of you actually went to see my buddy who uh, works with Mickey Fins, actually runs Mickey Fins, and, um, and he was talking, I want to show you something. And it was the number of cases of Jefferson's Ocean that was sold uh, for, for the for the majority of years, and then all of a sudden we started talking about it. Hmm. And there must be some intrigue out there with our listeners because there were a three hundred percent increase, oh, so a spike in sales, a, a spike wow. in sales of um of Jefferson's there Ocean Bourbon. In fact, I had a good uh, not, not a good friend of mine, but an associate of mine who um I bumped into at a restaurant. He actually sent me a text, and he said, "Where are you going to be this afternoon? Just before Christmas?" And I said, "I don't know why." He said, "I'm I got something for you." So I'm thinking it's a summons, you know. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, um, we meet at a certain place, and he gives me a ball of Jefferson's Ocean. And I said, man, you don't do I mean, I don't do that. He said, look, you, you ride with me every morning. I feel like I know you a lot better than I really do. And you've talked about this Jefferson's Ocean, so I want to give you a bottle of very kind and decent of him. But, um, you know, we, we become friends. Whether you want me as a friend or not, I have forced my friendship upon you as I force my musical taste on Rev, my wife, and anybody mm-hmm. at a tailgate or a fire. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. I beat them into mercy, Rev, is mm-hmm. what I do. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Hello. Hey, good morning. So now we got me without a hat's baker and bourbon Ken. Hey, Ken, you can't spell Kentucky without Ken. So I guess where that's why that bourbon's made. At, there you so. go. There you go. Uh, the guy was talking about boiled peanuts. You talked about Pennsylvania before. I knew a guy from Pennsylvania. He got some boiled peanuts, and he says, man, y'all, y'all drop these peanuts in the water. I can't eat this stuff. But 
and get, real quick, Pennsylvania, man, they got so many surplus folks in New Jersey and New York that somebody can register at the relative's house in Pennsylvania. It's tough to beat, man. Um, and I'm thinking uh, Murdoch trial today. I've been watching TV. I'm seeing Terry Moran, Dan Abrams. There's something in common those two guys have. They got into the business uh, during the OJ trial. And so we're looking at, think about OJ. Uh, he killed his ex-wife. He killed a 25-year-old young man. And little similarities here. Uh, we think about Bundy Drive, Brentwood. Uh, I think there was a Rockingham and this and that. But see, what did OJ do after? He flew to Chicago. Where did Alec? He flew to Almeda, which is a little community outside of Hampton. I call it flu. He drove so fast in his vehicle. There's another uh, thing, suicide. Uh, OJ had a suicide note. I guess our man Alec, he tried to have Cousin Eddie kill him on Salkahatchee Road. I'm not quite sure about that. And the the other one, there was Makita dog there with uh, O.J. Simpson. Now you got Cash and Buster uh, with this one, th these dogs. But here here's the main thing, the makeup of the jury. And and I'm not going to – I think I know – I've seen some stuff on the Internet, but I don't trust the Internet, but I've seen the makeup of the jury. That's who – when you see these cats on defense today, they're, they've watched it. They're, they're going to target one or two people to get this a hung jury. The makeup of the jury, anybody that was old enough to memorize this O.J. Simpson trial, the guy was guilty. He admitted he's guilty later on in life, but he got off scot-free. But all they're looking for is a hung jury, and, and can you know the makeup of the jury? That's who they're targeting today. This is going to be, be great TV. I would encourage anybody that watches be great TV. Have no question day. about it. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. And, and I'll add this. We, we've used the analogy this morning. I want to use Rev as my – Test subject, as I do with Towns Van Zant, Blaze Foley, and John Bryan. So, is it good enough for you? I mean, we don't have a weapon, we don't have an admission, we don't have a witness. We don't have any of those when it rains at three o'clock in the morning. Is that good enough for you, Rev? In other words, when you wake up on a on a Monday morning, you go to bed Sunday night, sun shining. There is no moisture. There is no um, rain or evidence of rain. You wake up Monday morning to go to work, and it's obvious it rained. You didn't see it rain. You didn't feel it rain. You didn't hear it rain, but it rained. But I know beyond a reasonable doubt that beyond it rained. A, but beyond a, I mean, th th there is a chance, and I think this is where we got into something Creighton Waters touched on. I guess there's a chance that a 13-year-old kid bought 100, you know, 500 feet of water hose and, uh, and, and doused the entire community down. I mean, there, there's a, but is that reasonable? No, that's not reasonable. So, so is the jury going to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Alec Murdoch, I mean, we know he's there. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Alec Murdoch is there moments before and probably moments after his wife and kid were killed. And they found out that there were lies involved. Well, I mean, he, he told a, a lot of lies. I yeah. mean, he, but, but he's not on trial for lying, correct? I mean, yeah. I understand lying is a, a kind of ancillary to the case. Um, I mean, if I'm, if I'm the prosecution, my entire case is this guy's never told anybody the truth. Why do you think he's going to start now? I mean, this guy has never once in his life been honest with anybody. What makes you believe that when he sat in this witness stand and looked you in the eyes, he was telling you the truth? You know why he looked you in the eyes? 
because he's the best liar the world has ever known. Let's go to the phone. Bill in Sumter listening to WDXY. Morning, Bill. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, I just want to back up on your music genre there. I want to throw a name in here for you. I think you'll really appreciate it. His name is Warren Zeters, Z-E-I-E-E-R-S. I think you'll really enjoy his music. Thank you. Appreciate uh, that. Z E I T. Let me write that down. I'll send no, Rev. No. I'll listen Saturday oh, and send Rev. Hopefully, that's not another <laughs> one. Send some of that. Um, yeah, he's probably in the same. Um, uh, that would be near the bottom of the rabbit hole, is what I'm suspecting. Let's go to the phone. Someone else is there. Nick in Lexington. Hello, Nick. Ken, the one thing I've been just struggling with on this Murdoch uh, stuff is time of death. You know, the one thing that could have eliminated him, if they would have put a thermometer in him, they could have said, well, hey, she died. The earliest day she could have died was 930. You know, all this time of death is on the phone because they didn't use the phone. Well, and, and yeah, and, and the, and the, um, well, what is it called? I mean, the guy that comes the and corner, views the, the corner. There you go. There you go. I mean, that, see, that, that's mind boggling to me how a coroner would allow that to be the limits of which he went to, to find out exactly when that death happened. I mean, he had to know it was a prominent family, that there were a lot of, um, ingredients involved in this, in this murder and to, 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 to put your hand and then testify that you did nothing other than that. That is the shred of evidence that may lead to either an acquittal or hung jury. But, I mean, I mean my point is, is it could have eliminated him because it sure. said it's 98.5. Well, let me ask you a question. You want to get real conspiracy theorists for a second? Yeah. What if he didn't do it for a reason? What if he believed that eventually that could be a, a seed of doubt? Very prominent family, very connected family. What if the coroner knew that if he testified, the only thing he did was put his arm or his hand under the armpit, he knew that would create some degree of doubt. I mean, I'm going, I'm playing it out to the extreme, but have you thought of that? Listen, I'm like you that I think there's some more to this, you know, there's no way he could have spent all the money. He's writing checks to his drug dealer. I mean, who writes a check to the drug dealer? I don't write a check to the bookie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Appreciate appreciate that. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you how cynical and 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 uh, and and I don't know paranoid I am. When I was lieutenant governor, I was on a no email policy. When I got in trouble, they, they FOI'd all of our emails, and there were none there. And then Rev's laughing because he knows yeah. how I roll. Yeah. I mean, I, but I told my staff, I said, "Let me tell you something. There are people going to come see us with problems." And they're going to ask for our help. I don't want a damn email thread anywhere in the public purview. Um, Call me old-fashioned. Call me country bumpkin. Call me whatever you choose to call me. I don't mind you emailing me about a speaking engagement we've got in Beaufort next Saturday. I don't mind you emailing me about a a classroom of kids who wants to come by the office at 10 o'clock Tuesday morning. But when we're talking about issues that affect the public, and some of these issues that were, and I'm talking about the, the Office on Aging, so some of the, um, uh, there was just some issues we dealt with in the Senate that were very proprietary and confidential. And I did not allow any emailing because I just didn't want a paper trail. I, I just, you know, we talked about it. What did y'all talk about? I can't remember. What, what do you mean you can't remember? I can't remember. Well, this email says, what email? 
Well, there are no emails. That's right. There are no emails. Um, but but I've thought of this. You looked at me kind of funny when I said, what if the coroner? Right. I mean, what, what if the coroner said, my buddy Alec killed his wife and kid, and he's going to get convicted of killing his wife and kid, I'm going to put my hand under the armpit and gauge what time Maggie and Paul died, and some smart defense lawyer that Alec hires will take me to task on why. I mean, I'm not saying he did. Please understand, I'm not defaming. I'm not slandering anybody. It's a crazy story, and crazy things happen in crazy stories, and you have to accept almost everything as being a possible scenario. I didn't say a likely scenario. I didn't say a reasonable scenario. But but I found in my years of plundering around in this world, there are likely or there are a lot of unlikely and unreasonable things that happen. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. If you hadn't been here aggravating the hell out of me, I could have done what I wanted to do, but I didn't. Can you Google something for me? I could try. What, what is the Reba McIntyre song? I don't even think. It might have been Gladys Knight who did it originally. Um, don't trust your soul to no backwoods southern lawyer. Okay. What, what song is that? The night the lights went out in Georgia? Yeah. I mean, that, that's it, right? I got to look but, it up. But there's a line in there, and there's a line after that. Trust your soul in the, the Yeah, the night the lights went out in Georgia. Okay. R- read that line. Don't Hold trust on. your soul to Wait. no backwoods southern lawyer. Got to find it. Okay. But, but it's in there through. somewhere. Yeah. And I should have done it, but yeah. I was yeah. predisposed. Well, yeah. Well, don't trust your soul to no backwoods southern lawyer because the judge in town's got blood stains on his hand. Well, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not going to say this because that would be unfair to somebody not able to defend or respond themselves. But when I heard there was some uncertainty around the coroner's behavior, my mind immediately went conspiracy theorist 101. Um, he's trying to not, ah, he's trying to place some doubt in there. Small towns in the South are run in, in a very unusual way. You know that. I mean, I'm not saying big cities talking about Chicago a second ago. I mean, Chicago got it or has its own way of conducting its um, internal affairs, so to speak. Small towns have a certain way of addressing certain things. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I think the implication in that song, don't trust your soul to no black backwood southern lawyer. The judge got bloodstains. In other words, the judge has probably been taken care of in some way. Um, a shape and my form. question, what comes to my mind is there has to be a protocol for something like that. I mean, a standard protocol. And was it followed? Well, I mean, there's always a protocol, Rev. Here's the question. You know where I'm headed. There, there's protocol and there's who to call. And I have found in my political life, who to call normally precedes or supersedes <laughs> protocol. Of course, there's protocol. You know the right way to do things. And I know the right way to do things. But do we always do those the right way? Do we always allow protocol to take place, or do sometimes we call someone? Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been on both ends of that. I have been the person called, and I have been the person making the call. Um, I'm not saying it's Southernism 101, and I'm not saying it's Small Town 101, but there's always been a, a degree of that in nearly every political transaction, governmental transaction, some are more easily accepted than others. Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike, hey. Hey, who's the first person called when a dead body's found? The coroner. 
So the coroner would have been there very, very quickly that night. And to, to assume that he was in on it would mean, you know, protecting Alex in some way would assume that he immediately suspected Alex as being the killer. And I don't think anybody suspected him to be the killer in the first 30 minutes of people starting to arrive. I don't, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. But but uh, And the judge there doesn't have blood stains on his hands. So he's pretty good. Judge Newman's done a pretty good job of it, so I don't I don't buy that quite buy that theory. Fair enough. I mean, that's all it is. I mean, I, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, and I'm not making the assumption. I just think in a case like this, thank you, Mike, appreciate it. I'm just saying in a case as unusual as this, you got to put everything on the table. I mean, you got to consider everything that could be likely or unlikely. That there are so many unknowns to this. There, there's so much circumstantial evidence uh, to this. And, and once again, when I say these things, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm, I'm certainly not privileged to any sort of information that will lead uh, me to believe or not believe any of this. But but I think as a, I mean, I, I guess I'm playing lawyer for a second. Do you put everything on the table or not? Do you put every uh, potential event on the table or not? Um, do you think of the coroner as a an unbiased arbiter? Or do you wonder whether or not he's been influenced by his years and years of service and years and years of um, being friendly with the Murdochs? That's got to be a part of it, doesn't it? I mean, if you're an investigator or you're a lawyer and, and the coroner has, I mean, you got questions about the coroner's, well, the, the way the coroner said, I think they died in this period of time. I mean, you got to agree that's a little bit unusual to, to put your hand under the arm and, and say, hey, that's how I estimated the time of death. I mean, if you're are a if you're an investigator, if you're a lawyer, you got to go. Why wouldn't you do a little something different than that? Why wouldn't you be a little more thorough in your evaluations of when um, this person died? That you know they're going to be a, a lot of investigating, a lot of questions, a lot of litigating uh, that follows that. Once again, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I just think in 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 some cases you're better served to put everything on the table. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.